Greetings, friends. Welcome to the best critically acclaimed of the decade. Woo! Ah, oh, there's so much competition. So many, so many better decades. <laughs> my name is Whitney Seibold. I am a film critic of some note. Uh, you may find me on Twitter. You may find me on IGN. You may find me around the internet here and there. And with me, as always, is the unbelievably good-looking. Oh my god! And the incredibly intelligent. And the always Sharon Stone. The always supportive Sharon Stone. <laughs> Oh, I'm just kidding. It's William Bibiani. Hey, everybody. My name is William Bibiani. I'm a writer for The Rap and Bloody Disgusting, and everybody calls me Bibs. And uh, this is an episode we've been both looking forward to and dreading. Uh, I can tell you right away, my list sucks. <laughs> I tortured myself, and I looked at the final product. I'm like, that's not right. I got it all wrong, but I got to stick with it. I got to commit we, to something. We got a, a best of lists, especially for something as big as a decade. Because uh-huh. best of the year list, we can usually wrap that up and feel pretty comfortable in a top ten. The order might switch on a day-to-day basis, but we're feeling pretty good. Yeah. When you're trying to wrap up an entire decade... Uh, that's a tall order, and really, if we were taking this as seriously as we probably should, we should do a multi-part thing where we do 250 movies yeah. or some crap, because it was actually a really good decade for cinema. Well, but well, I mean, is there a bad decade for cinema? They all have their the classics 1850s. in them. Oh, I suppose so. Before the camera was invented, <laughs> that was an, an awful year for cinema. I, I would say there's some... 60 was terrible. I would say that there are some decades that maybe churned out more classics than others, but yeah. whatever. The point is, especially nowadays, when like anywhere from 800 to 1,000 films are theatrically released every year... Mm-hmm. And that's con- just theatrically. Yeah, condensing it down to like a top 10 is... Almost a fool's errand, and it speaks a lot to our personal tastes as people, as critics, Um, and uh, what it really boils down to is this. We really want you to see these movies, and if you saw these movies and didn't really think about them too much, we want you to look at them again Hmm. with fresh eyes, because after seeing hundreds of movies every year for ten years, these are the films that stuck with us the most. Yes. And that... I think that means something. They, they stuck with us the most. Uh, in my case, I'm trying to think of things that are kind of bellwethers, like measures of mm-hmm. the cinematic form as we are moving forward. Sure. There are a lot of great, great films that were on my short list that I was not able to put in a top ten. Yeah. Because, you know, how, how do you winnow it down from about 60 movies? Yeah. My short list is uh, probably about 100. I could yeah. literally strike my entire top ten and construct a new top ten and be okay with that. That's the kind of quality we're dealing with. There'd be a few I'd miss. I feel like my top few I I would put as no matter what. Okay. But even so, yeah, there's tons of brilliant movies. I myself struggled with what's the best way to decide. Are we picking the movies that, you know, when time passes, will come to represent the decade? I I considered that. I have at least one of those, or two of those on my list, I think. Um, I put on, there's at least one on there that's just from me. (laughs) <laughs> it's well, just because, you know what, I um, think it's great, and, and you're going to have to sit there and listen to it for a minute. Um, and then there's there's at least one that is, I'm not sure anyone else is paying attention, mm-hmm. but I f- firmly stand by it, and I really do think it belongs on this list, even though I suspect it's not going to make many others. Mm. So I'm really excited to see what you came up with. And again... Can you hand me a pen? I want to check these off. As yeah, I can, sure. And, and again, you know, on any other given day, mm-hmm. this list would be different. Yeah. Um, or at least somewhat different. Uh, I think my top five would probably be more or less the same, but 
yeah, we have yeah. tons of runners up we'll talk about, but we really need uh, to get started. Whitney, mm-hmm. and we're gonna go in kind of a loose. 10, top 10. Yeah, we, we, I have... We have a number one, obviously, yeah. but then we'll... Yeah. But, again, the, these are... The ranking, I, I want to say, is kind of arbitrary. Yeah. I think I could even rotate, like, four or five films out of my number one spot. Sure. It's It was so difficult just to think, oh, this was definitely the best film of the decade. I just can't think like that anymore. Mm-hmm. I can just v- accumulate knowledge of certain films to recommend to people in certain circumstances. Sure. Uh, and that's as good as I can do. So, this is... A definitive apology <laughs> for the best films of the decade. In any case, it's always yeah. personal, and we'd be very mm-hmm. curious to hear your lists as yeah. well. So, so be sure to tweet us at Critic Acclaim, or you can email us letters at criticallyacclaimed.net mm-hmm. if you want to share your own list. Don't write a million words on that, but we'd mm-hmm. love to read lists yeah. and just be able to talk about here's your top 10 Especially, maybe one yeah. sentence each if, yeah that'd be really interesting actually and, and and if you can keep it to 10 see if you can do that because we can't it's hard uh, it's I hard had, i had to do a bunch of articles for the rap where they asked me to do like okay you're gonna do best the blank of the decade yeah they want yeah. me to do like the best animated films of the decade and i'm like great how many do you want it whittled down to they said 10 and i'm mm-hmm. like are you kidding me because there's a lot of brilliant animation this decade, mm-hmm. and whittling it down to ten is really, really hard. Yeah. And they were like, that's the assignment. You're going to have to make some tough calls, and mm-hmm. we trust your taste. And I yeah. was like, okay, that's hard, but uh-huh. it's sometimes is what you got to do. you got to cut it off somewhere. It's always yeah. a little arbitrary. Um, this last decade kind of saw the, the superheroes, superhero genre boom in earnest. Mm-hmm. I constantly get grief for hating superhero movies, because I don't like a lot of them. Uh, the Avengers series in particular is not quite my cup of tea. Mm-hmm. I didn't like the, that Superman movie at all. Um, the, the genre as a whole strikes me as being kind of uh, oversimplified. Yeah, We're treating them like they're these very serious stories about very complex themes, when really they're very, very simple because they're about moral absolutes. Yeah, I think there's but, an exception or two to that, but yeah. That said, there were a lot of superhero films I really liked this last decade. Yeah. And I wanted to devote, like, my, quote, number 10 spot f- to all of the ones I liked. Okay. How uh, many are there that actually do you feel are worthy of the 10 spot? Uh, there were five. That I, that's like a five-way tie. Interesting. Okay. Between Iron Man 3. <laughs> so many people are going to be mad about I, that. I don't care. Yeah, I think great. Iron Man 3 is one of the best in that series. I agree. Al- along with Black Panther. I agree. That's another really great one. Uh Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse yeah. is really, really terrific. It's colorful and innovative in a way that animated films typically aren't. Uh, Shazam <laughs> is really, really great. I think it just kind of nails what superherodom is all about and just sort of how kids really kind of have that fantasy. And Logan. Okay. The, the kind of, like, the end of the superhero epic. And I feel after something like Logan, we don't really need to explore superheroes anymore, but, you know, we're going to have more I don't think that's more. true. I think I think uh, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse and Black Panther, both mm. of which came out after Logan, mm. uh, both proved that there were avenues in the genre that had yet to be well, here, really here's, mined. Here, here's, here's the problem. You say yet to be mined because you're in the mindset that the superhero genre has set up for you, and that's why I need to cite these movies. Mm. We don't see one movie anymore. We see one and anticipate 30. Well, my point is and this. If you had said, we're going to stop after Logan, Logan is the end final statement we can have on superhero movies, uh, we never would have gotten those two great movies. Uh, I, don't okay, think, I, don't, I don't think in terms of genre done. I think in terms mm. of genre is something that we can well, I think explore that, if we want to in no, the future. I think it, and I think it's actually a noble ambition to make a film that seeks out to end a genre. You can't do something <laughs> after that. 
people still do. It doesn't matter. Yeah, it always, like, but, Scream was supposed to end the slasher yeah, genre. Like, it ended up revitalizing yeah, Scream, it. Scream is the last slasher, even though there's a whole generation of slashers after that. That's right. my point. And I think I Logan had that ambition. I, feel, I see what you mean. Uh, and, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so of course, there's other avenues to explore, but I'm not interested in what are they going to do in Spider-Verse 2. Uh, in fact, it kind of fills me with a little bit of pain to hear that they're making another Spider-Verse, because that first one was so good. Yeah, I still like... You, you did that idea. It's good. What's now, weird for fine. me... What's really weird for me, and mm-hmm. I think most people who listen to our podcast would acknowledge that I tend to skew, in terms of my taste, more mainstream than you, typically. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, you said it yourself. You're not a big fan of superhero movies in general. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's really, really funny that you're the only one to put a superhero movie on your list. <laughs> and I put five of them at that. I, and yeah. that's really, really funny to me. Like, mm-hmm. I never would have thought you would have... I thought maybe you'd put, like, Spider-Verse. Mm-hmm. Because for me... I think I probably would have put Spider. There's other movies I really love that didn't make your cut. Like mm-hmm. I probably would have put The Dark Knight Rises on there, and I think I like a lot the, of people. I like the Dark Knight Rises too. Uh, that's a controversial choice as well. I think films like Iron Man three and The Dark Knight Rises. I think a lot of the reasons why people reject those is because, in many respects, their storytelling rejects common ideas about what a superhero movie should be, mm-hmm. and they actually challenge our expectations and because they do things like hey you know the big oversimplified evil that we created for you in Iron Man 3 that wasn't a thing yeah we, that's a made that's bullshit they, they actually did something kind of clever you, 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 with it now, you know what's actually responsible yeah. for 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 the evils in the world <laughs> rich white guys yeah the like, rich white was, guy who yeah that was, was the point of that movie stuff. like that was a hell of a that was a hell of a swing i'm going to tell yeah. you but like i, I <laughs> well, love here's, that here here's what i like about uh, the these this group of films in particular and i i've gotten into arguments about this before because when it came time to Put you know start putting superheroes on the big screen as part of a gigantic trend. There's this mm. big push of them all of a sudden because uh, a they proved bankable with some experiments along the way, sure. uh, and b special effects technology had caught up with comic book visuals. Yeah, we and, could finally do yeah. what we had only previously seen in pictures. Yeah. Exactly. So now you can yeah special effects got to the point where we can show a Spider Man or a Captain America. So now we're going to start filming those and yeah. with reasonable degrees of well now we realism. can t- now we can take them seriously because previously if you tried to I, I, do I don't, I don't know about taking seriously well, I hate that phrase no, okay, but, but but here's the thing though Be- previously if you had tried to do mm-hmm. like we saw like the Spider Man live action series in the seventies yeah. They couldn't make web swinging look cool. Like it just like <laughs> it looked kind of silly yeah. when because of the limitations of technology. Mm. Now it looks cool. Yeah. Just like but, Star Wars, all of a sudden we can do space battles and have them look really cool, as opposed to look really cheap. That's but, my uh, point. But I was of the mind that it, now we have this opportunity to take these superhero characters that I grew up. I read all these com- grew up with. I read all the comics when I was growing up. Take them from the comic page and put them on the big screen. And my one question is, okay, now that you have this opportunity to put them on the big screen, what are you going to say about them? You're moving into a new genre, or into a new medium, excuse me. And this new medium gives you an opportunity to explore the character in a new sort of way. You can reintroduce them. You can create a kind of a new version of them as you go. And we can kind of have our minds blown by a fresh new version of the character. Yeah. Which they didn't do enough for my tastes. I can appreciate that. And I feel like... I was really when I first saw uh, the Avengers, the Joss Whedon film, uh, the first one, the first one when yeah. it came out in 2012. Uh, I was a little bit angry at the end of that movie because I realized that everybody had just been waiting for a movie where the superhero characters do exactly what they do in the comic books without any changes whatsoever. 
And I was upset about that because if I want to see what they do in the comic books, I'll just read the comic books. Seeing Mm -hmm. just that done in live action doesn't feel like that radical a change, and it feels like there's no purpose to making a film like that. Speaking of no purpose, Mm -hmm. Luca, get off the counter. Okay. Luca's on the counter. Um, I see your point, uh, and I think that sometimes we have been sort of... We've come to blows over that. I've come to blows with a lot of people over that. I I see your point. I really, really do. I don't think that there is, like no validity in actually wanting to see something translated to a different medium so that people who, you know, like that thing can see that thing play out in a new style, in a new form. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I didn't put any super... I didn't think I put any comic book adaptations on mine. A couple yeah. of them came close. I almost put Spider-Verse on here. I have, uh, I have Because I feel least... like Spider-Verse is kind of... In some respects, the ultimate superhero movie because it has respect for every interpretation of every hero. <laughs> they all exist in parallel universes. I, so I like not? that, yeah. and I think it explores that really, really nicely on top of just being a great movie in and of itself. It's mm. really visually innovative and gorgeous and great characters, mm. and I love it a lot. The other movie I was thinking about putting on here, and I didn't, it made my runners-up, was Dread. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Which I think is a really excellent comic book adaptation, and uh, because it's based off of that particular comic, mm-hmm. it really embraces the idea that superheroes are inherently fascistic. Yeah, yeah. Dredd is essentially a cop, and he's a cop well, he is working... A cop. No, he's, I'm saying... Well, he's, he's a judge, he's, but yeah. yeah. he's essentially a cop, is my point. Mm-hmm. He's essentially a cop, uh, and even though he's got, like, a mask and everything and looks kind of superhero-y, and he works for a fascist government, and he doesn't challenge that government. Mm-hmm. Like, in Stallone's mm-hmm. movie, he, like, realized, oh, the government's bad, I was wrong. In the new Dredd, he's just like, and that's the way it is, and I have my principles, and they're wrong, but who gives a fuck? And he, like, there's something about like, that that's really like bold. That film better, because the, yeah. the Stallone film is Luca ridiculous. is back on the counter, and I am gonna, I am going to, I was gonna dedicate my number ten uh-huh. uh, to uh, getting Luca on the counter. Whitney, uh, pat, pat the podcast for a second. You got him last time. Okay, well, um, just to, to spin my wheels on superheroes one last time, um, <laughs> Thanks to films like Logan and thanks to especially a film that came out just this year or just uh, 2019, just last year, uh, Avengers Endgame. Avengers Endgame was ostensibly the, quote, final chapter in uh, this 22-film blockbuster cycle. It was essentially a season of TV. And and that was sort of what a lot of critics were taking away from this series, that the popularity of the Avengers series and these sort of superhero narratives uh, doesn't necessarily speak to any sort of larger sociological problem. A lot of people say, oh, well, you know, people are behaving childishly. Yeah, I know my generation. We're childish. That's fine. (laughs) We're we're in our 40s and we're still consuming kid crap very seriously. Uh, But more than anything, I think the popularity of that type of movie, that sort of Mm -hmm. episodic television movie mm. uh, c- kind of changed the way we were looking at cinema all of a sudden. Yeah, And if you were into, as I am, uh, intense singular experiences when you go into a theater and you have these sort of closed-ended intense adult dramas then you were, you were becoming increasingly upset by the popularity of these movies. I understand. And that was something else I think a lot of uh, critics, including myself, were railing against. This <sighs> televisionization of feature films that was popularized by specifically the Avengers series, mm-hmm. but then all of these other uh, film series that tried to spring up in their wake, like you know all these cinematic universes that they tried to launch. Yeah, I know. Um, the Dark Universe is on my list here. <laughs> it's uh, not. It is not. Um, no, I see what you mean. I think when we look back at what the superhero franchise of the 2010s in particular did, because mm-hmm. the Marvel Cinematic Universe kicked off like just before 2010, 
yeah. and then it kind of well, became what it was in the 2010s. I, I think when when did Disney bought Marvel in uh, nine? When did no 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 Disney bought Marvel? Yeah, was it not nine? Was because, it 20? I thought it was ten. Because Paramount made Iron Man and. They made they made Iron Man, Sony Incredible made, Hulk, and Sony made the Incredible Hulk, and those were no those Universal a, made Incredible Hulk. Or, excuse me, Universal but, but made in the Incredible conjunction Hulk. with Paramount, I think, and then mm-hmm. uh, because they had a crossover, and then the Paramount made Captain America, and then I think technically they made Thor, and then it was like Avengers was the first one that was exclusively Disney. No, no, Thor was the first one that was exclusively Disney. Well, whatever, that was, who that was cares? The first one it's, and sort of like the launch of the universe. So this, I'm, I'm not the point doing. Is it's, it's completely bound in by the decade. I fair enough. My yeah. point. My point is this. My point is this. When you look at it within the confines of the decade, I see a world around us that is increasingly chaotic and difficult to quantify. There is so much information coming in out there and so much misinformation Mm -hmm. and so much divisiveness that the ultra simplification of ideas and ideologies in a superhero franchise and the consistency with which that is presented, we have to rely on, we have to fall back on Mm -hmm. a couple of times a year, is basically the escapist entertainment of its time. Yeah, yeah, that's that's fair. that's totally fair. Okay. It's the, the, the musicals of the 30s. That's superheroes. For my number tens. 10, I wanted to reserve a spot for mm. a film that only you and I give a crap about. <laughs> um, I think every film critic, mm-hmm. if they work long enough, will find themselves championing a film that no one else seems to like, or very few. Uh-huh. Um, I think if you're not, I worry about you, actually, because it, you you shouldn't be like following the popular trend all the time, how could you possibly, if you're watching like hundreds of movies a year, follow the tomato meter every time? Yeah. You yeah. gotta be you gotta be the outlier <laughs> once in a while, right? You gotta either be praising the thing that everybody else hates or you gotta be hating the thing everybody else loves at least once in a while. If if you don't, then you know, I, maybe reevaluate your taste a little bit. Or yeah, it's, I, I, no, it's your taste. It's no, fine, well, yeah, but it's so. just like I'm not very. Your taste doesn't sound very different or interesting to read about. And you, I kind of want to. It's not uniquely you. Is yeah. The point. So yeah. I wanted to. I wanted to, and I could have put a whole list of movies mm. of like films that you or I or or, or both, you know, were really into that no one else was. I could pick mm. something like Premium Rush. Where we love that movie, and I think it's really, really great. Or I mm. could have picked um, Jupiter Ascending, which I think is full of really big ideas and really mm. odd uh, uh, imagery in ways that sci-fi used to be about and just kind of isn't very much anymore in films. Um, and I really wanted to put White House down. <laughs> because, because it's great? Because it's really, really wonderful. It has all of the things we love about the Fast and Furious movies, mm-hmm. but it also actually has a political purpose, which is actually really interesting. Like It actually has some thought behind it. I know it seems super silly, but there's actually a justification for that. But the film but, ended up picking, and I feel like we had to. One mm-hmm. of us had to. I, I figured you would. Is Step Up 3D. Step Up 3D is friggin' awesome. When we think about cinema and what cinema <laughs> can be. Step Up 3D, colon, when we think about cinema. No, I mean memoir. It. No, like, we, when we think about cinema, we tend to think mm. in these very formalized ideas. We're thinking about formalized uh, elements of genre mm. or, uh, you know, levels of seriousness, like... Whatever that means. Well, like, you know, like, oh, well, you know, I should put Marriage Story on my top ten because it's about serious things. Like, you know, there's, mm. a, there's a mentality that can, like, creep into your head a little bit. Like, mm. is this movie important or not? And what I'm really looking for, more often than not, in any movie, whether it's a serious film about important messages or an absolute flight of fancy that is about nothing at all, mm-hmm. I am looking for vibrancy. 
I am looking for a film, whether it's ecstasy. Yeah, whether it's exciting or whether it's slow, it doesn't matter. I want to see someone pushing the medium Mm -hmm. as far as it can go. Mm -hmm. And I honestly believe that Step Up 3D is John M. Chu, the director of Crazy Rich Asians and the upcoming In the Heights, pushing dance movies as far as he thinks they can possibly go. (laughs) And... On some respects, the storytelling is really, really sloppy. Yeah, it's a dance movie. There's not much story to it. But Mm -hmm. in terms of just pure ecstatic cinema, Mm -hmm. it bounds from one wonderful visual idea to another with really loving, like lovable characters and just there's no end to its creativity within what a lot of people would consider to be a very narrow genre. It's a dance movie. Mm-hmm. What do we do with that? Okay, well, first, uh, Moose goes to New York and dance fights a samurai and gets picked up by a League of Extraordinary Dancers and has, like, a Tron dance battle against other samurai. And then you're like, wait a minute, whoa, 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 back the, back the hell up. I thought we were at Dirty Dancing. I'm like, no, we're not at Dirty mm. Dancing. We're on an acid trip right now. We're we're on the next plane. There is a, a glorious amount of absurdity that goes into dance films in general, but the step-up films in particular. Yeah, especially where, the later ones, yeah. Where reality doesn't matter. Now, when you look at something like the Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers dance films, which are kind of the high watermark for the genre still. Yeah, top hats, those, swing yeah, those, time. Those things came in the mid-30s, and we're still reaching for that. Uh the dances were used to advance the story emotionally. The plot was always secondary. And there were, like, mistaken identity plots and these sort of broad comedic things that they Mm -hmm. were sort of peppering around the dance numbers. But we bought all of that, and we kind of were able to slide along with how silly that was because the dancing was so wonderful. Mm -hmm. And when they danced, they were falling in love with each other. The dance equaled the emotion. I agree. And And I think that there's something pure about dance that uh, is particularly conducive to film. And it's so bizarre that we don't have so many any like good dance films coming out on the regular. Mm, at least not high-profile yeah. ones, yeah. Like, and, on, but- and I, I don't count cats. Uh, but, <laughs> because dancing is one of those things that you can't fake. If you have a really talented dancer who's just putting their talents on screen, that's better than good acting. That's better than good photography, mm-hmm. because that's real. Yeah, And that's where the ecstasy comes from. And it's purely visual, which mm-hmm. is something that film captures really, 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 yeah. really well. And I'm actually going to fight you a little bit about the Ginger Rogers Astaire stuff, because when you look at especially their early stuff, mm-hmm. you know, their gay divorcee and their top hats, those are actually really messy stories. We consider those movies <laughs> to be absolute classics, but really they're mostly a, a review mm-hmm. of crazy dance numbers that they were able to put together and thinly connected with narrative. Yeah, my, and for whatever reason... The narratives were not necessary because the emotions come from the dance. Exactly, yeah. exactly. I just want to make clear about this because I feel like sometimes people make fun of dance movies because of how the plots work. There's a whole mm-hmm. South Park episode about it. The plot is irrelevant. We consider Top Hat and Swing Time and all those films to be classics because their priorities were in check. Mm. We knew what the magic of cinema was, and it was watching Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. I know what the magic of Step Up 3D is, and it's watching Adam yeah. G. Savani mm-hmm. and Allison Stoner in an insane <laughs> one-take <laughs> shot doing... Uh, a Fred Sturgeon Rogers number. Mm-hmm. They're actually doing like I won't dance. Like and it's like a it's a bit of a remix and it's very inventive and really clever and they do that whole wonder. And then they also do one where there are robots and lasers and shit. <laughs> it's completely unbound by like any sort of and, uh, narrative 
uh, uh, conventionality, right. and there's something about that that is kind of really pure to me. Yeah, they, and this uh, is what I want from genre cinema. I want people to push and to also make it seem like they're having so much fun that I am. Re- I have no choice but to have fun too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it was shot in 3D. Yep. Step up 3D, and uh, the use of 3D is used pretty well. There's a few like hand dances and mo- movements and splashing water that sort of flies at the audience that mm-hmm. makes it really exciting. The best use of 3D is when you call attention to it as a gimmick. Mm. Trying to immerse you in a world, that's BS. Sorry, James Cameron. Yeah. But you're not going to use 3D for anything other than a fun visual visual joke. Our eyes get Um, used to it if you just use it for depth. We just get used to it. Mm. And it stops being woo after a while. Um, You really got to wow us every once in a while with something really, really obvious and clunky. And the clunkiness is where the charm of 3D lasts. There's a scene in Step Up 3D where two of the characters stand on an air grate <laughs> and fall in love as they pull straw, like they suction straws full of Slurpee out of a cup. It's like bright green fluid. And they let it go right next to them in, in this sort of vent of air, and it floats gently up to, like, past them. Uh-huh. And they're completely enchanted by the floating blobs of Slurpee. It's ridiculous, and it, and but it's camera, actually a really pretty a, image. And then there's a high angle, and the, the Slurpee floats up really close to you, and you're wearing 3D glasses, so there's, like, Slurpee in your face. Yeah. Academically, that's disgusting. I don't, <laughs> want to, I don't want drink thrown in my face when I'm watching a movie. In practice, it is utterly enchanting. Yeah. Because the characters love it. They're, they're falling in love while they're doing it. It's really kind of a unique image. It's unique to the location where they shot. And it makes perfect use of the 3D as a gimmick. Yeah. Anyway, all, yeah. I, I consider Step Up 3D to be a high watermark for this kind of genre cinema. Uh-huh. Um, and it is one of the most entertaining times I've had in a theater the entire decade. And of course, that is saying something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right, what's your number nine? My number nine is Sorry to Bother You by Boots Riley. I'm actually surprised this is so low for I you. I know, I really... I mean, it was my number one last year. It was the best film of, uh, of 2018. And... This is one of those films that, speaking of sloppy, it, it is a little sloppy. It, it's thrown together, but uh, it's thrown together in such a way where uh, you can tell that the director, Boots Riley, is stumbling over himself to present all his weird ideas to you at once. Um, I think he maybe didn't think he was going to direct a film ever again. Maybe he thought <laughs> this was his only one. So there was a sense of kind of subversive urgency yeah. to something like sorry to bother you um it's about like it's almost uh, like a deathbed rant like i got to tell you everything yeah, everything yeah, yeah, i yeah. have right now mm. while the bomb under the bed is about to go yeah. off yeah it, it's it's really incendiary it's really confrontational it's really subversive it is a, a anti-establishment in a way that i don't see in a lot of movies mm-hmm. um i maybe maybe it's just there's a goth in my heart think, somewhere but I, I love movies that bother to look at the establishment, see little of value, and attack the parts that aren't working. Well, we live in a world where Mm. attacking the establishment is the kind of story establishment corporations tell when they want to look cool. Yeah. yeah. And it's lost a lot of the edge. Like, you look at something like Disney's Dumbo. I was was going to bring that up. Which is all about how Disney is evil, and Disney packaged that and sold it to you. Mm. I admit that's kind of subversive in its way, but at the same time, buying a ticket to Dumbo doesn't really have the impact it should yeah. because of that. Uh, th- Sorry to bother you. Uh, you're seeing something that is renegade. You're yeah, seeing something yeah. that in any other uh, decade, people would be like, I don't know if this is a film. <laughs> like it's so it's such yeah. a fascinating collage yeah, yeah. of pissed off 
genius. Mm, yeah, Boots Riley is mad, and I like seeing that anger. It's the kind of anger you see from young Alex Cox or yeah. young Oliver Stone. You know, he's, he mellowed out. And most filmmakers do mellow out and change yeah. and evolve, and that's fine. Well, young Spike Lee as well, very, well, very vibrant. But, yeah. you, but here's the thing. You look at Spike Lee today, and he's just as angry. Well, that's true. Yeah, so Spike Lee didn't mellow out. That's actually really good And, and I, was, right. I was actually, yeah. re- I so regret that there's actually not a spot for Black Klansman or Chirac on my list, because uh, those are awesome movies. I know, Black Klansman's um, so fucking good. I just so, never thought Chirac. So I'll just say that, great. let's just say Sorry to Bother You shares a spot with Black Klansman and Chirac, but yeah, uh, yeah Sorry to Bother You uh, has the edge, though, because it's also really bizarre, and I love that. It, it's... Um, uh, Lakeith Stanfield plays a young man who takes a call in a uh, takes a job in a call center, and he has to call people at home and you know make sales. And he's not making any headway until his cubicle mate, played by Danny Glover, says, "You can only make sales if you sound like a white man." So you have to put on a white, quote, white voice, and uh, in the, the parlance of the movie, they actually get different actors to dub them over. Yeah, so like David Cross David, is now yeah. all of a sudden someone's voice. Yeah, David Cross is Lakeith Stanfield's voice, and, and of course, it looks totally bizarre. Um, oh, who played Danny? I think Steve Buscemi played Danny, Danny Glover's voice. No, I don't think it was Steve. Pat Oswalt played. I don't know it was one of, one of them. Yeah. I don't think it was Steve Buscemi. I'll, figure, I'll look it yeah. up. But uh, yeah, so there's this uh, economic disparity. There's all this anger about uh, racial disparity. Uh, about how the, it was Steve Buscemi. It was Steve Buscemi. Yeah, right. That's what I thought. Uh, there was. And, you know, sort of clawing up the corporate ladder and finding success oh. is seen as sort of like a moral triumph. Actually, wait, how awful that is. I was wrong. It's rumored. Uh-huh. That Steve Buscemi was Danny Glover's white voice, but Boots Riley said it was actually the film's sound engineer. Oh, really? He just, I guess he just, just sounds kind of like, like Steve Buscemi. Yeah, All funny. right, well, w- whatever it was, but yeah, he ends up going up to sort of the upper echelons, and it takes place in this weird parallel universe where the call center is in this tall building and up at the tall, the top of this tall building are all of like the haves yeah. who are like living all the, living up all, on all of their rich money. And it's eventually revealed that the reason they're so successful at the top of the call center is because they're calling people up and selling them essentially slaves. Okay. Uh, I don't, don't reveal anything. I'm not gonna, and I'm not going to say anything Basically, else after that because it goes further. What Lakeith Sanfield sells out so bad. Here's what I'll say. He sells out so bad. He is finally able to meet the rich, White guy, the the the, the Elon Musk uh-huh. at the head of all of this, played by Army Hammer. Good casting. <laughs> I, he's great in it. I love Army Hammer. And that's when it goes from good to great. That's, that's when it, that's when it that's just when goes it, totally sideways. You will. I people told me like, listen, there's a twist in these movies or whatever like that, and I'm like, uh huh. Oftentimes, I'm pretty good at seeing twists because I study a lot of narrative structure. I saw what was coming in Knives Out. That's not a that's not a brag or nothing. Mm. It actually sucks sometimes because yeah. I want to be surprised. Did not see where Sorry to Bother You was going. Nope. I had no fucking idea. You are blindsided. Uh, (laughs) That that killed me. I was like, what the fucking fuck? (laughs) Holy shit. So yeah, there were fewer films that were more energetic, more bracing, more confrontational than Sorry to Bother You. Yeah, it's really great. Uh, My number nine could not be more opposite. Oh, dear. It's, um, qu- it's quiet and calm and gentle. It's it is, actually. Okay. It is incredibly quiet and calm and gentle. And I am going to actually be pretty brief about it because I've talked about it like a bunch in the last month. But it's Greta Gerwig's Little Women. Oh, okay. Yeah. Greta I, uh, Ger- 
I, I have regret that there are no 2019 films on my list because I got to live with them for a little bit. That was my thought too, and I really wanted to <coughs> abstain from. Because mm. honestly, if you look back at my lists of the best films of any given year, it's not like the number one of each year ended up on this list. Mm-hmm. And in fact, a lot of my number ones would have fallen back to my number nine after a while. I still like them all, but yeah. like you know, this things change a little bit, and the amount of well, you catch amount, up and you see other well, films. Also, from those the years, amount of space yeah. they take up in your head, or maybe you grow out of them. Like Scott Pilgrim is a movie that used to be on my top ten of the decade mm-hmm. because I think it is one of the most daring stylistic films we've had in many decades, and I still agree with that. But after having long conversations with you, you're right. I don't think the narrative works. Yeah, it's, it's, so like I've changed a little bit. There's on a that. lot. I, I did a whole commentary track about everything that does not work in that movie. And I do I, not like it. And I disagree with you on some of it, but I don't mm. disagree with you on all of it. And I still think it's an excellent film, and I still think people should see it. But it does have problems. Mm. It's not in my top ten anymore. So these things go up and down a little bit. But I also didn't want to exclude a film just because it was in 2019. Okay, so that's fair. I decided that ultimately, what I feel Greta Gerwig did with Little Women warrants inclusion. And if maybe mm. if I did this list in a year, it would be back down to runners up. I think that's fine. I don't think that's a big deal. But uh, Little Women is, yeah, it's the latest adaptation of Little Women. It's a book by mm. uh, Louisa May Alcott. It is a brilliant book that a lot of people have grown up with for 150 years. And we've seen it adapted over and over again, and every adaptation has pretty much been great. Mm. And none of them did what Greta Gerwig did with it. <laughs> Greta Gerwig took a story that is inherently familiar to a lot of people and is very close to a lot of people and adapted it faithfully and changed everything. <laughs> like, I don't know how well, she did that. That's incredible. Here, here's the wonderful thing. And I just realized I, I could only come to this realization today because uh, we're recording this the day the uh, Academy Award nominations were announced. Yeah. Uh, Greta Gerwig was not nominated for Best Director. Mm-hmm. Little Women was nominated for Best Picture. It was up for Best Picture, Actor, Supporting, or actress, a- supporting Actress, uh, Screenplay. And I think Costume. Co- costume as well. Yeah, um, all deserve this. I thought Florence mm-hmm. Pugh was going to get snubbed. I'm so excited she's yeah, nominated. So Fa- Florence Pugh is up for, for Best Supporting Actress. But if you think about what this Little Women is doing, a big part of the conversation is how much we value art by women. Yeah. And how we va- value female artists. And that's a lot of what and, this new Little Women is and, about. And yeah. that Greta Gerwig was not nominated. Kind of plays into that theme, God, you're like right, it really does, damn it? hard. Yeah, the way Greta Gerwig, it was always kind of like a cutesy bit in Little Women, mm-hmm. and I don't mean that in actually a derogatory way. I just mean like it just felt like a happy ending to the story, where at the end of the book, the character who was obviously an analog uh, for Louisa Malcolm uh, wrote basically Little Women. Mm-hmm. To Greta Gerwig, that's the most important part. That's <laughs> yeah. not something you throw in at the end, and then, by the way, something sad happened, and so she wrote Little Women. She frames it as, this is a story about a woman making art, and this is about a story about a woman making art about women at a time when no one gave a shit. Mm-hmm. Or at the very least, they weren't didn't care about the kind of stories she was telling. There were, of course, a lot of female authors. Yeah. Um, and there's something that's just really really exciting about reframing a story that we're all very, very familiar with and telling it in a way that feels intensely modern yeah. and reevaluating every single one of the characters so that they are doing everything they always used to do, but now we understand them better. Mm-hmm. Now we understand that Amy wasn't a spoiled brat. Amy actually had responsibilities that no one understood. 
Yeah. To the entire family. And she was actually very intelligent in calculating the entire time. And we understand that Meg wasn't boring because she wanted a husband and a family. She is just as passionate about wanting that in her life as Joe was about her books. Mm. This movie takes no favorites among the March family. Even Marmee gets to reveal her <laughs> anger in a way we've never really had before and really measured in an interesting way. Mm. There's something intensely beautiful about taking stories that I think so many people would be very eager to just, you know, we, we have to move on. You know, the history of a lot of our art is difficult and problematic, and maybe it's time to put some of these stories away. And I think to tell, find a movie that takes these classics, if you will, mm-hmm. and respects them, but also understands how they need to evolve in order to remain relevant, is actually a huge order. <laughs> that is a huge, huge, huge task. And I think Greta Gerwig perfected it. And I love this movie. I'm not going to argue with anything you said. I, I put it on my top ten list. It wasn't my number one. Yeah. But whatever. It was, you know, it doesn't matter yeah. when you're making these lists. Um, Agreed. Uh, next up on my list, and again, these are arbit- kind of arbitrarily ranked. Sure. Um, but this is another uh, film about subversion, but it's about baby subversion. It's about it's, baby subversion. What? It's, it's Lucas Murdison's We Are the Best. Uh, oh, okay. which is So it's like, what are we, the Lucas talking because, remake? No, it, because it's about uh, th- three girls in the 80s. Oh and my god, 19, another in, comic book movie. And it's another comic book movie, yeah. You put so many comic book movies on your list. Yep. This I is so sure unexpected. <laughs> This is so weird. <laughs> uh, yeah, we are best. We are yeah. the best. Uh, Lucas Moody'son uh, made a film about Sweden in the 1980s and found uh, this trio of uh, two 12-year-old and one 13-year-old girl uh, who uh, want to be punkers. They're not really sure why. Their wrath isn't that great. Their home lives aren't <laughs> great. Like their parents kind of ignore them, and their parents are you know arbitrarily going about their business. They don't have the best living situation, but they're not destitute. No, no, I love it. I like to think mm. of there's that line in the Wild Ones where someone mm. asks Marlon Brando, "What are you rebelling against?" Yeah. And Marlon Brando's like, "What do you got?" Right. Because he's rebelling against everything. And we are the best. They'd be like, "What are you rebelling against?" Well, have you got anything? Yeah, yeah. It's like <laughs> like they're so well, eager to rebel, well, they don't we, care what it is. They understand that rebellion is really, really important, but they're not <laughs> old enough yet to have something that like is necessarily huge to rebel against. And in fact, the big, the plot of the movie is they get together, they want to form a band, they don't even name the band, they don't play instruments, they they actually enlist the uh, 13-year-old girl, who is a, a very square uh, Christian, mm-hmm. to uh, join their punk band and say, hey, you're the only one who knows how to play these things, can you teach us how to play four chords so we can learn one punk song? And the one punk song they sing, it's not about taking down the establishment, it's not about the government, it's not about feminism. It's about how much they hate gym class. Oh, yeah. <laughs> hate the sport. Hate the sport, exclamation point. Yeah. And they, they have their their big break, and they kind of... Well, big break in that. Yeah, they, they, get play play in a, they get to play a gymnasium with their school. Like, that's their big break. Like I said, it's the baby version of all of these things, yeah. and it's adorable, but it's also vitally important because this is the start of so much sophisticated adult thinking. You can yeah. see these kids starting to become adults and wanting to, you know, find dissatisfaction with something and destroy the world in that punk rock sort of way. But the only way they can do it is to like stab balls of yarn in their apartment. Yeah. They're just like, it, th- and they're like throwing yarn out the window. Like, ah, how rebellious. Like, like they're, they're in a box the, and they're like yeah. playing around in the box mm. in front of a fast food joint. Yeah, they're they're like, like, oh, we're so disruptive. We're going to start a fire. So they like light a single book of paper matches and put it on like a bronze statue and just leave it there. Or they're going <laughs> to do something. Or they're going to like, oh, it's so cool when yeah. like musicians play. Like we need to, we need to make money for more instruments. 
instruments. So we're gonna like play in public and we'll put like a hat out. Mm. And then it's like, do we have enough for an instrument? No. Okay, you want me? You want to buy ice cream with it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, they, they, they even say, oh, it's for a cause, and we're dying. We need this money. It's like, well, let's just get ice cream. <laughs> Uh, relationships in this world are massively complicated. People cheat on each other all the Okay, they hold each other's hands. Uh, yeah, there's, there's like one guy there's holds like, the There's like not even kissing yet. It's, it, it is such a sweet, enervating movie. Yeah, it makes you feel so alive. That is so true to, to youthfulness. It makes you feel alive in a way that a lot of other movies that are trying to cater to youthfulness or capture youthfulness, mm-hmm. that are all, they're just trying to sell you something. Yeah. This isn't trying to sell you anything. This is just trying to put you in that mindset mm. of that kind of vitality. I had to do a list for the rap that was the best comic book adaptations that weren't about superheroes of the I, decade. I, I did a similar list for IGN. Yeah, and this is my number one. Good choice. It is a delightful mm. motion picture. It is made with such insight to the characters, but also such a great love of art. Like, mm. I know a lot of people love Sing Street, and I get it. Sing Street's a lot of fun. Mm. I will take the Pepsi Challenge with We Are the Best in Sing Street <laughs> any day of the week. Um, I think We Are the Best yeah. is so much more sincere and honest about how... Because Sing Street is all about, like, yeah, he's really gonna make it, man. That is not the damn point. No. That is not the point. Is how you live. And they are mm. they are living their mm. absolute best lives yeah. at, like, nine years and, old. Yeah. And they're, they're great. They're, well, they're 12. They're but, 12? Uh, yeah. Okay, I don't, I'm bad but with they're, ages. They're, after they kind of... And this, in the, the last scene of the movie is so gorgeous. Well, not the last scene, but, like, near the end of the movie where they've had their... their chance to play and they're not good <laughs> they're on the bus going back and they're they're pleased as fun they're so happy because they did it because they did it and they disrupted something and somebody got mad at them they did it right in their minds <laughs> and they're in the back and they're just sort of laughing saying yeah we're the best they're saying the title <laughs> and then this older asshole turns around and looks at these 12 year old girls and say you guys sucked that was terrible you ruined everything and they just sort of look at him and say no we're the best yeah <laughs> No, we're, we're, we are the best. <laughs> it's great. What a, what a wonderful film. I love the movie, and I love your love of that movie. <laughs> um, my number my number eight and seven are kind of interchangeable, but they're about similar things. Down, they're just yeah. about similar things, but um, this is actually a movie... Same, same both, actually. Well, yeah. okay. My, my, number, my number eight is a mm. film that I actually discovered really recently. Um, it came out early in the decade, and then I had to do a list of the best animated films of the decade, uh-huh. and I had to catch up on a couple that were really acclaimed, mm-hmm. and I'm so glad I did, because I can't believe I had missed It's Such a Beautiful Day. It's Such a Beautiful Day is my number one. Wow. That's the best one of the decade. Um, wow. It's such- Sergio, get off the counter. Not you too, buddy. <laughs> I, I, it's hard to think of a film that affected me as deeply emotionally as... It's such a beautiful day. Yeah. Because this is, uh, it's about death and mental illness and pain and doesn't shy away from any of it. And somehow it's more effective in being enacted by essentially stick figures. Yeah. Uh, This was done by Don Hertzfeld, an animator who... um, Probably best known for uh, shorts like Rejected, which is one of the great animated shorts. It it was an Oscar-nominated short about... the bumpers he did for like like commercial bumpers he did that were rejected by all of the outlets who hired him because they ostensibly too, they're all fake because they're all, because they were too crazy yeah, they're, they're so they're, weird they're weird, yeah. weird and kooky coming up on the learning channel bees fly out my nipples it's, it's, it's angry ticks yeah, sorry. angry ticks fly out of my nipples ah. yeah. <laughs> um, like yeah characters open their mouths and like engine noises come out it's really really bizarre uh, sense of humor he also did a really like really widely received it was on Netflix people were finally got to see hmm. um, like Don Hartzell's work in a really wide uh, market, uh, World of Tomorrow, 
Mm. Uh, which is also really fantastic. It is a short, though, so I couldn't yeah. really include it. Um, I feel like it's a different medium. But, uh, yeah, so It's Such a Beautiful Day is actually a feature film that he did in segments. Mm. So the initial segment was presented in the mid-2000s, and then another one was in the late 2000s, and then the final segment, and then he presented it all as a full feature, which it was, was in the early 20-teens. Uh, mm. And it is about a guy who is going about his life and very gradually you realize that his boring life is being affected by something and they're never super specific about what it is but you find out there's early talk of the diagnosis mm-hmm. like and and, 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 and the treatments he, and the he's, surgeries he's, he's been going yeah, he's been going along with his girlfriend but she says she's not as happy since the diagnosis and they don't ever explicitly say what that is yeah and it is told from the uh, very much the perspective of somebody whose mind is deteriorating mm-hmm. it's uh, maybe some kind of early onset alzheimer's some kind of dementia has affected him yeah and we get to see how his emotional state is degrading and how that is tapping into a much longer intergenerational narrative of his, his family and his life and who he was who he is who he's going to become and how that in this really sort of tragic way relates to the grand infinity of time. Speaking of the grand yeah. infinity of time, yeah. Sergio, get off the counter, buddy. Sergio's doing it now. Why Sergio? You're always the well-behaved one. Yeah. Um, you're so, you're such a schmoo. Um, anyway, but yeah, no, and it's such a, it, it's so like off-putting actually to have all of these giant concepts be introduced in like kind of the most simplistic animation mm. possible, but through that, he can lull you into the sense of security like you can in real life where you just come up, like you just have a life mm. and then all of a sudden you're on the floor <laughs> yeah, and you don't know why. Mm. And there's the way that Hertzfeld pulls you into these experiences that are terrifying and sad and tragic so organically Mm. through that use of ultra simple animation is absolutely breathtaking. Like kind of this kind of pure cinema in a way that you just, you can't even Mm. wrap your head around sometime. And then as the narrative progresses and you start getting, more of a handle on what is actually happening, why it is happening, what happened with the character's mom, etc. Um, I don't want to ruin it, but mm. the ending slayed me. <laughs> the ending is such a really bold choice for this kind of a narrative. Mm-hmm. Almost as bold as Sergio on the counter again. <laughs> Stop mentioning the cats. Okay, but he is. It's a wonderful, profound movie. It's a really wonderful, profound movie, and the cats are ruining it as always. Yeah. It's a, Seriously, this is... Several films on my list mm. are about dealing with mental illness. And I was looking at my list, and I was like, well, I have a preoccupation. Yeah. <laughs> what was I going through? I, I know what I was going yeah. through, and I understand that in many respects, as a result, this is very personal. And there are several films on my list that are about dealing with mental illness in one way or another. There are several films that I had on my list, and I was like, okay, the list needs to be more varied. It can't have, <laughs> I can't have this film and my number seven and Christine mm-hmm. and The Voices, which I'll talk about in my runners-up. I can't have all of them <laughs> on there. I know just this, they're all about the same topic. It's, mm-hmm. I need to spread it out a little bit. But it's such a beautiful day, and I think given a little bit more time, it might grow and be higher on my list, uh-huh. is really one of the most astounding... And I actually avoided this one for so long. <laughs> because, because of the subject matter? Because you told me how heroin it was. Yeah, yeah. And I believed you, and you were mm-hmm. right. But at the yeah, same there's... time, 
you didn't adequately convey at the time how astoundingly beautiful mm. and sensitive mm. and loving it was. It's, yeah, kind of, there's something just emotionally dense. Don Hertzfeld, um, you know, you watch something like Rejected or some of his earlier shorts. I saw a lot of his stuff when he was associated with uh, uh, Spike and Mike, Sick and Twisted Festival Animation, or with uh, the animation show where he had, you know, cloud-shaped beings talking about how their anuses were bleeding, and you know, really, <laughs> real, you know, really crass, you know, unbelievably hilarious, but unbelievably crass shows. Yeah. Like, just, just trying to get a rise out yeah. of you, trying to get attention, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but well and, done, yeah. And at some point along the way, he decided that he needed to use this sort of crassness and those sort of, like, little stick people yeah. to try to get even deeper into the human condition than anybody else would allow. You and know, I think with uh, he also did a film called The Meaning of Life, which has some pretty profound uh, ideas in that one. And I feel like it's such a beautiful day is is not just his masterwork, but it's one of the masterworks of the decade mm-hmm. because it is so emotionally dense and hits you so deep in the heart because it gets you to something so true about the human mind and humanity in general. I 100% agree. And my only other thought is this, because you were bringing it up. Mm. You know, a lot of times we hear people talk about how uh, films should be entertainment and why do we have to look Mm. for so much depth in things? And uh, when you look at the career of someone like Don Herzfeld, someone who started off being very intelligent, but very just forthrightly humorous. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a lot of ideas in Rejected, but he just kind of glances on them, and mostly well, like part, it's, it's... Part of it is that the animator himself is like slowly mentally deteriorating, so right. the cartoons are deteriorating, but, but that, there's no played, depth to that. It's played for laughs. Yeah, there's it's, no yeah, depth to like that. It's like a dark joke. But mm-hmm. what you see is, as you watch an, an artist like Hertzfeld evolve, and you mm-hmm. see like what he started off with using what he did to entertain and shock and then growing in nuance and complexity, mm-hmm. you start realizing how there really doesn't need to be a line. Mm-hmm. And you can have incredible art, entertainment, anything really, that actually does have more meaning. And then once you see how, what is possible, it's so hard to settle for less. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, well, what's, that, that, what's your number? sort of like the, the plight of the critic, isn't it? Yeah. It's like, oh, I just want entertainment. Well, I've had that kind of entertainment. What else you got for me? Yeah. We're, we're, we're aching for novelty in a way most audiences aren't. Yeah. What's your next pick? Um, it was a great decade for horror. Yes. Uh, especially independent horror. Um, mm. A lot of studios were shying away from horror product, or I guess there were plenty of like haunting movies. That's what we were preoccupied well, with in the 2000s. I, the, the first um, half was very, uh, very focused on found footage. Yeah, there's found, very little of, the, of which uh, is a, aged well. A lot of the found footage stuff, it was just sort of a novelty at the time. And, yeah, a lot of those films are completely forgettable. And then we yeah. moved into Ghosts. Uh, yep. we're, we're sort of dealing with uh, ill memories and trauma. Trauma is, if there's any one theme of this decade, it's trauma. <laughs> well, yeah, I'd say um, you're probably right. Yeah, and we're probably just sort of still recovering from like, even our a superhero lot of, movies. A lot of it is about like yeah, dealing with tra- 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 trauma, trauma creates a hero, and then trauma yeah. redefines a hero yeah, in and, a lot of these franchises. And the, the, and the only way to uh, overcome trauma is to enter combat. You notice that that's that's a big. That's theme not of necessarily this stuff. the best yeah. message, but yeah. Anyway, yeah, moving um, on. But uh, I, I feel like in the independent horror world, there are a lot of new interesting ideas coming up all of a sudden. People who were raised on horror movies, people my age, started coming forth and saying, okay, we're going to take some of the aesthetic markers from the films I grew up with, but we're not going to remake them. That's not what I'm interested in doing. I want to do some new films. And 
it was difficult for me to sort of suss out which of this sort of wave of indie horror kind of defined it, mm-hmm. but I eventually settled on It Follows. Interesting choice. Um, yeah. No, it, was, it was between that and The Babadook. Uh, uh, both great choices. Both, yeah. I probably would have leaned Babadook, but It Follows mm-hmm. is a great choice. Yeah, but, and Babadook is also about trauma. But yeah. um, It Follows, I think, is a little richer uh, in mm. sort of what it, it is about, because it's also about sort of societal guilt and the function of sex in society and mm. the way we... Especially in youth, we, in Yeah, and young people. The yeah. way young people have been trained to wield sexuality as something that, well, follows them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it was able to create a unique mythology, for lack of a better term. Very much so. And a unique idea using very, very little. All you needed to do was put someone in the background walking in a different direction, and somehow you squeezed terror out of me. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was utterly terrified throughout the entire running time of It Follows because it plays like nightmares I've had. Well, it's so great because this is a film that really embraces widescreen photography. And Mm. often when movies embrace widescreen cinematography, they're going for this epic sweep. And It Follows, it's Mm. just trying to give you a great sense of the space around you. Mm. And and they are filled with a lot of public spaces. So that, and because you know that the mechanic of the monster, which if you haven't seen the movie, Mm. uh, is if you have sex with someone, you run the chance of basically catching a demon. Yeah, it's not not a not sexually sexually transmitted ghost, more or less. Yeah, if you have sex with them and they have the demon, then the demon will now follow you, and the demon just walks like Pepe Le Pew. Mm. It just walks towards you, and if it catches you, it kills you, and then it goes back to following the last person you had sex with. And it and it looks like anybody. Yeah. It, it could it, be anybody. Yeah. And so what you're doing is in every scene, after you after the premise has been introduced, in every single scene, you're looking in the background trying to see who's following, uh-huh. if anybody. <laughs> and that is such a, like a great gimmick. It's like a, a horror version of Where's Waldo? And yeah. <laughs> I love that. There's uh, Yeah, there's there's one really great scene where uh, the main character, played by, um, oh, what's her name? Uh, not Minka Kelly. Micah Monroe. M- Micah Monroe. Uh, Micah Monroe uh, is in a classroom and she looks out the window and sees somebody walking toward her and you don't know if that's the demon or not. Yeah. But it may as well be. Mm-hmm. And then there are times when it's completely unambiguous but it's totally terrifying is when they're driving away and there's someone standing on a roof and they're completely stark naked. Yeah. And they're just sort of looking at our protagonist. It's like, okay, there's nothing prurient about this scene. This is horrifying. Yeah. And that's really great because it taps mm. in. I think the best horror movies tap into an anxiety that we have, especially mm. one that we weren't really thinking about. Yeah. And when it comes to It Follows, it's so distinctive and unique because sex comes with baggage and guilt. Yeah. Not always, and it shouldn't, but it often does, especially when you're young and you're you know figuring life out and you don't understand the complexities of relationships, and uh, when, especially when people can mm. use sex against you in some horrible way. And so. By literalizing that as like, you know, you oh, I had sex with someone. Should I have done that? Mm. Is that bad? Did I catch anything? That little doubt in the back of your head that's always following you around, that's not a person that's going to kill you. Mm. That's terrifying. Well, and, and I think it, it speaks to something that's very up to date. You know, the, these sort of guilt, guilty feelings about sex and sexuality or these, not necessarily even guilt, just sort of uh, doubts or thoughts you're having about sex and sexuality are something that have followed every generation. But I feel like this idea of a, a very intense uh, sexualization 
And the presumption of sexual knowledge mm. is something that is unique to the generation in which it came out. Yeah. That uh, you know, this is a generation that grew up with the internet and grew up with essentially internet porn. People mm-hmm. could look up internet porn on their phones by accident. Yeah. And there's still and, misconceptions abound, but it's not mm. the same kind. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and the idea now is, even though there's a lot of sexual information about there, there's a lot of conversations being had, there's a, people are a lot more open about their sexuality and gender than they've ever been before, but there's also just as much misinformation out there mm-hmm. and all of this I, the idea that when you're not talking about it and you're consuming a lot of pornography and that's how sex ought to be mm-hmm. that there's this presumption that you should already know a lot about sex going in yeah. like even if you haven't made your sexual debut yet <laughs> which which is a term I love by the way I was just yeah, introduced like that. that recently yeah. everybody says lose your virginity screw that well, stop the, using that term yeah it's, say, it's, it's pretty ugly actually say sexual debut that, <laughs> that is a term that I prefer I, that sounds more positive yeah, um, um, the only thing, it feels theatrical the only thing keeping it <clears throat> follows off of my like I do think it's a brilliant horror film and I love it to pieces. Mm-hmm. The only thing that keeps it off of my upper echelon of best horror of the decade, mm-hmm. like right up there with, well, one other film on my list in particular, mm-hmm. but others as well, like Babadook, which didn't quite make the list, um, is I don't think it knows how to work its climax. I think the ending is yeah. scary. I mm-hmm. think the climax is a well, little the, contrived. The, the climax is contrived, and it does come from sort of an older generation of horror movies where the, you can trap the monster. It becomes something very literal. Yeah. And that's always way less interesting. It's like um, you watch the first Hellraiser movie. There's this mysterious puzzle, and you solve this puzzle. You get so wrapped up in it, you know that that these sadomasochists appear in front of you and all, you know, introduce you to this experience. They close the box, you go away. It's an interesting myth, but we're not so concerned with how that box works. The yeah. we know is that's how it how it does. Right, right. Um, it follows, time, tries to add some yeah, by, elements, by the time you like get to weakness. Hellra- yeah. and, by the time uh, you get to Hellraiser 4 and they're making yeah. like space station boxes and stuff. And I defend robots. Hellraiser 4, but it does get stupid. I, I, also, be, I also defend <laughs> Hellraiser 4. I actually think it's an okay movie. It's better than Hellraiser 3. Yes! But... Uh, but yeah, it, it becomes a little too obsessed with the mechanics of yeah, it. And, and I feel it, like It Follows starts to become a little bit mechanical. Yeah, not so I much think, that it hurts the film, but it does <laughs> keep it out of my best horror okay, film was, of the decade. I was going to say, yeah, it, it does. I think it doesn't hurt the film because they're still young people, and that's kind of the way they would think. I suppose. It plays into the character psychology. I don't think it seriously hurts the film. It's mm. just why, like, if I were to pick horror films in this vein, I would probably pick The Babadook. Okay. Because I think it just wraps up more more neatly while still being really, really scary. Okay. Um, but in any case, my number seven mm-hmm. um, is a film that has a, quite a bit in common with It's Such a Beautiful Day because it's also about mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, but I actually really admire the way that this film completely undermines every other movie, even remotely like it. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's Lynn Ramsey's You Were Never Really Here. That is a great movie. It's a really phenomenal film. I think it's Joaquin Phoenix's best performance of the decade. And that's actually saying something. Mm-hmm. I know he's really good in The Joker. I'm not even going to fight you on that. I'm not a big fan of that movie. I don't think it's very good. I think it's adequate. Uh-huh. He's good in it. But like between The it's- Master and You Were Never Really Here, woo, he had good performances <laughs> this year. You Were Never Really Here stars Joaquin Phoenix as a guy whose job is to rescue kidnapped children. He's an action movie star on paper. Yeah, in every other movie, <coughs> he would be played by Bruce Willis or Sylvester Stallone or, you know, to a lesser extent, your Steven Seagal's or whatever. But, mm-hmm. like, he's a tough guy. And, indeed, when in one of the scenes in the movie, he, like, bursts into a den of really grotesque iniquity and he just beats the shit out of everybody. It's not cool. 
And in fact, the thing that Lynn Ramsey finds within basically every action movie is this should be destroying the hero's brain. Yeah, yeah. Joaquin Phoenix is a guy who does what he does because he was abused as a child. And it has affected him to the extent that in almost any scene, you can see him thinking about possibly ending his own life. It's a Mm -hmm. film very, very much about suicidal ideation. And the idea that he is constantly thinking about, I can just leave at any moment. Mm -hmm. But there's always something else for him to do. (laughs) <laughs> he's always taking care of his mom or there's always another child to save and that's literally the only reason he keeps going because he hates everything about his life he hates everything about what his mind is doing to him but he has purpose and that purpose for, for at least a few hours he's got purpose but that yeah. purpose is because of sensitivity there's a scene in the movie where he's rescued a girl but uh, the guy who kidnapped her wants her back and ends up he's actually like a politician or whatever, and in any other movie, that would be like this huge, big revelation, and they would send everything. Like, the no, it's not about sting. that. Yeah, yeah. It's not about that at all. And then he has to kill a couple of guys, and he kills a guy, but he's not dead yet. He's dying on the floor, and even though he's a horrible human being, this guy, Joaquin Phoenix sees him dying, and he has so much pity for him that he lays down with him mm-hmm. to die with him. Yeah, and there's something so endlessly beautiful about thinking about the world in which so much of our fiction lives. Thank you for the for the bells, Luca. <laughs> Thank you for the bells. They, they don't want things to get too dour. But thinking about this world of violence that we inhabit in so much of our fiction mm. and then finding actual humanity, not in terms of like, oh, but it's okay. Some people like flowers. Like, no, finding the humanity within that darkness and how that humanity would be tainted by it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a fantastic drama it's, about mental health, but it's mm. also a really great thriller oh, on top of it. Well, it's really well, incredible. It's it's an antidote to action movies. I agree. And it finally addresses something that I've that always concerns me about action movies. Mm-hmm. How um what what do what do the villains do in action movies? They kill. They yeah. kill a lot of people. What do the heroes do? They also kill a lot of people. So yeah. what, what's They're typically, really, they feel kind of justified, and, but yeah, and, that's not. And the occasionally same thing. you'll have some really contrived melodramatic moment. We're not we're not so different. You are uh, you and I, and in the and the good guy says, "Well, I kill the right people and yeah. kills another person." It's <laughs> how many people did Indiana Jones murder in like Temple of Doom? It was like a ton. It's like twenty six or something. Like a metric, nuts, a yeah. metric ton of people. Like uh, what, how does like, Iron Man that, save the day at the end of Endgame? Mm. He commits genocide. He kills he like an entire thousands of people. Army. He he. Gets, yeah. He gets a wish-making machine, and we've been, we the audience and he the character have been trained to think of that as a weapon. That's the That's only all thing can he can think of. Think it. Yeah. He can't. Think, he couldn't teleport he them away. He doesn't. He couldn't. Yeah. You know anything? He doesn't snap his fingers and like give everybody else powers or, or change their yeah, minds or like yeah. Yeah, all he had to do mm-hmm. was change Thanos's mind. Yeah. Couldn't think. It didn't occur mm-hmm. to him. He has literally the power to do anything. He and, couldn't change someone's and he mind. Kills him. He kills him and all of his army. Yeah. Now. I understand in like movie language they were just a bunch of like crocodile monsters of and course, spaceships I get and it, robots but, and stuff. But, but yeah. if you again, if you take these things seriously, yeah. then that actually is kind of weird that we dehumanize so quickly. Yeah. Especially in the stories where the villains are the ones who dehumanize. And 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 the villains are they the filmmakers go to a lot of trouble to make sure that the villains have a point or are kind of relatable or are human in some kind of way. Yeah. And yet we just want to still see them murdered anyway. Yeah. Uh, you were never really here. Yeah, flies in the face of that. If somebody, if the hero is a killer, then the hero is 
is a miserable person mm-hmm. and they live a miserable life and they're not happy about what they do. Yeah. If they are, then they're just as bad as the villains. Yeah. And I don't know mm-hmm. what film has like the best ending of the decade, but mm-hmm. you were never really here should be on the list. It is definitely. Holy definitely, shit. That ending. Get, that ending gets it. Yeah. It, that it, ending it completely something. gets it. In a way, like, I was watching this movie and I realized, A, I need to go back into therapy, and B, <laughs> I feel seen. Yeah. Because mm. I've been in some of these like yeah. darker headspaces and very mm. few movies understand what, yeah. what that's about. What's your next film? Uh, my next film is, is a tie between two films because okay. they're of a piece. The filmmaker is very controversial, but mm-hmm. uh, Alejandro Jodorowsky came back in, in the, the teens with two uh, autobiographical films about his youth and his... Uh, young adulthood. One was called The Dance of Reality, the other one was called Endless Poetry. Uh, we were talking about ecstatic cinema. Yeah. Um, Alejandro Jodorowsky always wanted to be an artist. He always wanted to be a poet or a mime or a songwriter. He needed to create art. That was his, his imperative as a human being. And he did. And I'm jealous of that. <laughs> he uh, he was able to make some of the most striking cult movies of all time. Uh, he made some pretty bad ones in there as well. But he's always been a really fascinating dude. A lot of people were interested in uh, became interested in him again when a documentary about a film he didn't make mm-hmm. called Jodorowsky's Dune was playing in theaters because it was about how he was going to make Dune before David Lynch did. He had this mm-hmm. huge ambitious idea about how to turn and make this gigantic science fiction epic with all these bizarre ideas he had. And indeed a lot and of his um, uh, pre-production ideas mm-hmm. and designs ended up worming their way into things that we but like Like know. Alien and Star Wars yeah. took a lot of that, that production. H.R. Giger uh, was the yeah. designer for uh, Jodorowsky's Dune. That same year he made a movie Nobody paid attention, but he did make a movie yeah. about his his. I remember uh, that. I, people, well, yeah. I, I was at a party and people were like, "Oh, well, Jodorowsky's Dune mm. is on my list of the best films of the year." I'm like, "Cool." Did you see Jodorowsky's new film? Mm. He had a new film. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> now Jodorowsky is an old man now, so he's he's feeling very reflective, and so he wanted to sort of look back at the things that made him the person he is today. And he's thinking about uh, g- the political climate in which he grew up, his parents, and the way they behaved. And yet Jodorowsky isn't telling a straightforward autobiography because he uh, wants to sort of filter it through his own poetic mind, as it were. Mm-hmm. So it's his impression of what his young life was like. So well, it's not even his... that. It's, it's like how it aff- he's filtering it through how he remembers it as an old man, yeah. which is many decades removed and prone to impressionism and also prone to think about not just the events themselves, but how they transformed him, mm-hmm. which in turn transforms how he thinks about them. Yeah, 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 that's a lot. <laughs> so there's there's a lot of these wonderful layers of meta narrative worming their way throughout. Dance of Reality is about his boyhood. He appears as himself to address his younger self, played by a younger actor. Mm. Uh, his young father is played by Jodorowsky's own son. So there's mm. another additional weird familial layer going on. Uh, then we fast forward to Endless Poetry. This is about his young adulthood, how he entered film school and started meeting other artists. And that one really captures something that's really important about being a certain age when you're in college, about how you're just introduced to sort of new artistic ideas and new philosophies and new films and new books for the first time. And you seem and you're really, really excited about all the wonderful things in the world. And you have all these new ideas, and you you in this wonderful little tiny window, you get into your head while you're drinking coffee at the local coffee house one day and going to an open mic night or whatever it is, that you, as a student, have the ability to change the world. You're in college now, and you can do it. And that feeling doesn't apply to everybody. Not everybody's changing the world, but yeah. everybody feels like they can for a minute. Yeah. 
it's always it's striking that Jodorowsky had the chutzpah to actually freaking do it, to live by his artistic uh, uh, ideals. Ide- ideals, yeah, yeah. Of uh, course, both of those films are exciting and vibrant in a wonderful way. I hesitate to put them on the list because uh, Jodorowsky had some pretty horrible accusations leveled against him about um, something that occurred on the set of El Topo. Which he, on one time, he actually copped to, mm. and other times he didn't, and there's been some like discussion he's, he's that maybe there was a, forth, maybe there a, was a translation yeah. issue or something, and mm. it's hard to say, and I gotta tell you something, mm. after reading that, mm. Jodorowsky's work is harder for me to get into because it is mm. so intensely personal to him, and now I don't really necessarily want to get mm. into his head. However... That being said, I only saw Dance of Reality. I didn't see... What was the other one? In the Endless movie? Poetry. I didn't see Endless Poetry. All right. Um, this is exceptional filmmaking. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, if... You, there's a whole question. Can you separate art from the artist? Should you even have to? Uh, if we believe in the death of the artist, mm-hmm. or the death of the author, uh, which is basically it is possible to appreciate a film separate from the author and their intentions. Well, not not in this case, though, because they're about him... Personal, I, I appreciate that, but my, my, my point <coughs> is this. If you're able to just watch the film, you'll see a really incredible film here. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a larger part of the story. I haven't done all the research to it. I don't know. But yeah. there is some really incredible filmmaking here, and mm-hmm. I totally understand why you put it on. Yeah, here. well, but you, just he he's able to sort of... Even at, at his... He's in his 80s. I, I think he's in his 90s now, isn't he? Joe Roski's mm-hmm. an old man. He's a very old man. Um but he still seems to have that uh, enervated, completely sincere, totally optimistic view of the world, mm-hmm. and this idea that he can change things with art. And I was keeping, continuing to try to do that, and is so mm. moved by art and poetry that it becomes very infectious, and it makes you want to read more and to consume more art and to make your own art. And that's yeah. not a, that's something not a lot of films can do. I agree. Uh, well, my next film is also uh, a coming of age film. Mm. Uh, it is also the only film on my list that won Best Picture. It is Barry Jenkins' Moonlight. That's a great movie. Really mm. amazing motion picture. Mm. It is the, boy, did the Academy get it right that year. Like, <laughs> I didn't, who saw that one coming? Like, it's really rare. Um, Moonlight uh, is a story of a young boy. As he grows up, we see him as a child. Mm. We see him as a teenager. And we see him as a man in his, I think, 20s, maybe early 30s. Mm. Every single time, he's played by a different actor. And we see through that transformation of his character the transformation of a human being mm. and the way that different life experiences, which are cataloged over the course of the film, shape us mm. and turn us into different versions of ourselves and different people as we run into and run away from aspects of our personality. Mm. Um, in the first uh, third, uh, our, our hero, who I believe in the first part is called Little. Yeah. Little. Mm. Everyone calls him Little. He's a little kid. Uh, and he's being picked on a lot, and he doesn't know why, and he doesn't fully realize, even though other people can tell, that it's because he's gay. Mm-hmm. And other kids are, can tell he's behaving differently, and they're being cruel to him. And the only person who's being nice to him uh, is a man played by Mahershala Ali. Yeah, Juan is his character. And uh, and his wife or girlfriend played by Janelle Monet, who's a great actor, actually. Mm-hmm. In addition to being one of the best musicians of her generation. Um, but what our, our little doesn't realize is that Mahershala Ali is a drug dealer and in fact he's actually been selling drugs to his own mom who is played by Naomi Harris Naomi Harris yeah. is also phenomenal in this uh, and he, he's he can't trust mm-hmm. this man 
in his life, even though he's actually been giving him the only positive experiences he's ever had. Yeah. Cut in high school, he's actually he's still an outsider. Uh, he's everyone's calling him Sharon is his name, mm-hmm. and uh, and he's still really really uncomfortable. But he's starting to come to terms with his identity as a gay man, mm-hmm. and he's starting to actually have these tender moments with another classmate, which might actually be love mm-hmm. or at the very least the start of it. And we see how that goes horribly wrong, and then we see how that has turned him into. The version of himself at the end, mm-hmm. which is actually very much like Mahershali, he's become a drug dealer, and how he has changed as a person, and how when he reconnects with that person that he knew in high school, how maybe there's another transformation coming. Mm-hmm. But but the film doesn't go down the melodramatic path. No, it, it never feels find funny. A, find a, 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 no, un, I, un, un, I never. I, himself I had to of, take a yeah. pause just because I was feeling all the things this movie made me feel. Mm-hmm. This this movie is intensely sensitive to the human experience, and, and on, on top of it all, like t- telling a narrative about um, characters who are often kind of pushed to the side mm-hmm. in dramatic cinema that a lot of people are actually exposed to. It's not outside the mainstream, but it feels so intensely human and so intensely specific. Mm-hmm. This character played by three different people all of whom are perfectly nailing it you feel like you understand a human life and i look at what moonlight does and i look at something like what boyhood does mm-hmm. which is a movie that Boy- i know Boyhood like, nearly made my list I, I like i'm actually surprised it didn't i know how much mm-hmm. you love that movie and i think that the fact that richard linklater made a film about a child growing up watching this one child actually grow up and filming it over many many years is a haunting effect mm-hmm. But because it's all about the immediacy of his childhood, it doesn't get any sense of like that real maturity and understanding that may be right at the end. Moonlight is all about that story from the, the perspective of someone who understands poetry, mm-hmm. someone who understands great literature, someone who understands powerful filmmaking. Mm-hmm. And I love this movie. <laughs> this movie like really just this movie really touched me in a mm-hmm. lot yeah. of really potent ways and all of the things that so many movies mm-hmm. strive for and push so hard for and come across as so phony for trying to reach your heart. Mm-hmm. Moonlight does so effectively and often with so little. I mean it's beautifully photographed, mm-hmm. but it's not like it doesn't have the scale of a lot of other big melodramas mm-hmm. that are really trying to hit you. Like really, 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 really yeah, hard. Moonlight just does it. It's a really notable that uh, that Moonlight won Best Picture because uh, it's about it's a film about the queer experience, yeah. and uh, it, it's a very uh, honest, straightforward, unsugarcoated version of the queer experience. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of and a gimmick in the narrative, but it's not doesn't play like that. It's not no, like look what we're no, doing. No, no, it's not. It's, it's yeah, the, it, the it's, smartest way to tell the story. It's, yeah, it's really down to earth. It's really honest and uh, g- good for the Academy for giving Best Picture mm-hmm. to to, Lala, to Moonlight. Well, it's also a great film. Another thing I realized I was thinking about that I love mm-hmm. about it is the way that it approaches masculinity. 
Masculinity yeah. is something that in movies is often taken for granted. Like I finally caught up to Ford v Ferrari, which <laughs> okay. is a very good movie. But I was I was watching this movie. I was like, yeah, wow, there, there's how did I grow all this extra chest hair? This is yeah. this movie should be called Men the Movie because <laughs> it's just about men working on cars and punching people. Like mm. that's it. It's just about manly men doing manly men things and not really thinking about what that is and what that means and when is it positive and when is it negative and how does it change the way we interact with one another and is this healthy and Moonlight by focusing on one very specific element Mm -hmm. of masculinity and uh, the way that that kind of masculinity can be uh, basically Mm. treated like trash by so much of society like you're not a real man like that kind of bullshit Mm. And you see just the beauty of masculinity, like what masculinity can be and how heart-enriching <laughs> it can be. What an intense motion picture experience. Just what a gorgeous motion picture. Change the subject. I'm getting, I'm getting <laughs> okay. for clamps. Um, one of the defining films of the decade came out right at the beginning of the decade, and it was David Fincher's The Social Network. Oh, there you go. Uh, the Social Network told the story of the rise of Facebook.com. <laughs> I'm waiting for The Social Network Part 2 because it's time to reevaluate that stuff. Um, yeah, that's the reason why it didn't make my list because I feel mm. like my perspective on well, it shifted. I feel like looking at the character of specifically Mark Zuckerberg is still relevant today. And yeah. a film that did this 10 years ago, because it came out in 2010, uh, to try to get at the heart of what at the time was kind of a, n- a new boom in these social media sites. Yeah. Uh, Facebook.com was s- still relatively new at the time, mm-hmm. but everyone was already on it at that point. Yeah, like Twitter wasn't really Twitter yet. It, like it, it was around, it, I think, when the movie came out. But, but it yeah, didn't it, it dominate didn't, the didn't conversation. Really, yeah. It didn't change the world the way Facebook did. Yeah, and uh, sort of the way we have come to change our thinking because of the way social networks have cha- sort of trained our minds to think is all right there in the social network, the movie. Uh, it's kind of lamenting a certain kind of bro-dog mentality that has leaked into every bit of our discourse thanks to the medium. Marshall mm. McLuhan would pass out in ecstasy watching, <laughs> watching something like the social network. The medium is the message. Yes! Oh, I got right it. there! I, I, see, I would kill to read a book Marshall McLuhan would have written about social media. Yeah. He had no yeah. idea how weird it was going to get. Yeah. Uh. yeah the, the, in, in the Trump era, what, oh. would, what would McLuhan say in the Trump era? Oh. But yeah, Let's the, bring him in. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we know nothing of your work. Sorry. Sorry. Thanks. I, I, I read your books in college. Uh, <laughs> I watched Medium Cool. Uh, yeah, there's... Uh, there's something very uh, eager and immediate going on in the social network that is still relevant today because we're still using social media and what the ideas introduced in the social network are still relevant today. Uh, what's more, the screenplay is just a corker. Yeah. The, every line of dialogue is a witty moment in a way that uh, David Fincher is able, and the actors are all able to wield with a certain kind of savviness mm-hmm. that makes the characters seem smart rather than just like kind of winky clever. I'm always impressed by someone who is able to bring an Aaron Sorkin script to cinematic life. I don't think mm. everyone's got it. Yeah. Cause Aaron Sorkin is, let's be honest, he's a very talky screenwriter mm. and his, which I don't mind. I like, uh, talking. Oh, I, yeah. it's not, it's not a problem. 
film, mm-hmm. but it can be difficult to make it seem cinematic as opposed to basically a film play. You see, a film I quite like, but a film that struggles with it is Steve Jobs. Because yeah. it's basically just Steve Jobs talking before big product launches. Mm. And Danny Boyle is throwing every trick he can think of. <laughs> to make a product to, launch to make look that, interesting. Well, just to make the conversation exciting. And <laughs> I think he does a noble job. I actually think it's a very good movie. But Fincher, has it's so elegant the way mm. that he brings it out. And his, the movie is so moody mm-hmm. in a way you're not expecting because typically this kind of this would be a rags to riches story in almost anyone else's hands mm-hmm. okay here's this nerdy a-hole from college who basically invented facebook and it all started because he was a misogynist asshole yeah, just, who he, invaded he wanted, people's privacy he wanted to like rate hot girls on on the web yeah. and he did it because he was pissed that someone broke up with him and injured mm-hmm. his ego he's a bad human being yeah mm-hmm. and uh, the, that but that led to Ideas, which eventually led to other ideas, which and unfortunately it's hard to tell whose idea was what at any given time. Mm-hmm. Which, which is led what the to movie a, is about. Which yeah. led to a series of lawsuits, uh, but which led to Facebook, which changed the way people interact. Oh. I mean, I hesitate to say forever, but certainly within the last fifteen years. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's a really complicated story about that. For me, I rewatched this pretty recently. Actually, okay. I, hadn't, I hadn't seen it since it came out, and I wanted to. Um, read an article about David Fincher or something. I'm trying to remember exactly what I was doing. But um, I wasn't as in love with it as it was the first time I saw it. And part mm-hmm. of it is because uh, we know more about the negative side effects of Facebook. Mm-hmm. And initially when this movie came out, it would seem like, oh, here's the dark story behind this thing we all like. Mm-hmm. And now we realize the thing we all like is absolutely horrible. It's and just dark through and through. Yeah. And the movie, um, even though it clearly treats Zuckerberg like, like, a, like an ass. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it lets him off the hook. A lot of people point to the scene at the beginning of the movie where Rooney yeah. Mara, who only has one scene, and she kills it. Well, uh, and, and presents the thesis of the film right away. But I disagree with that. I, I, not oh. A lot of people say that, but I All actually right. don't think that that's the point. Hmm. A lot of people say that the point of the movie is this early bit where she's talking to Mark Zuckerberg, and he's so self-involved that he can't see her, and he demeans her, and mm. it's all about him and his ego. And she says a line, and I'm going to paraphrase, which is, you're going to go through your whole life thinking that people hate you and disrespect you uh, because you're so much smarter than them. Mm. And it's not. It's because you're an asshole. Mm. The end of the movie is a character played by Rashida Jones telling him he's, she doesn't think he's an asshole. Mm. I think that kind of undermines that opening bit. I think the movie thinks that Mark Zuckerberg, to an extent, mm. uh, may be an asshole, but it's okay because look what he accomplished. Mm. And I look back now with the benefit of some hindsight, and I'm not sure I buy the ending anymore. So for mm. me, for me, and this is me, and I, maybe this is my, I'm, I'm alone on this, I think the movie's exquisitely crafted, mm. but it's very difficult to write a legend while the person is still alive and working at it. Well, so here, I think maybe it was a little I, early. Here's how I read that scene. Rashida Jones says, I think you're, you're kind of an okay guy, mm-hmm. but we've only seen uh, kind of how these people are reacting to the success of Facebook, and... A lot of this movie, a big theme of this movie, in fact, is about how where we place value now. And the only reason a lot of people are paying attention to Facebook.com is because it was successful. And people are fighting over this idea, which wasn't even necessarily a good one. Mm-hmm. And in fact, that's the big argument of the film. Facebook.com, it's this thing we all like. 
this wasn't a good idea. It came from a dark place. The people who started it were all dickheads. Mm -hmm. And the only reason they have any kind of attention is because they're wealthy. Yeah. Uh, And I think... So you think Rashida Jones was, like, influenced by that? She heard the whole story, though. She heard the whole story, but I think the whole function of this entire lawsuit that she was embroiled in was to try to give try to gain respect via wealth and i feel like yeah i feel like everybody in that room mm. in fact the entire movie is making this point that we've all been kind of duped by this idea mm. i think the social network would make a really great double feature with the wolf of wall street i also almost I, made my list i agree with that yeah. that's that's 100 a good mm. double feature um because i see your is, point it is about these morally bankrupt people yeah. who attain wealth specifically to the end that they can ignore conventional morality. I think Wolf of Wall Street Mm. is a little more honest about Mm. the type of person that is attracted to this and the type of Mm. um, sort of domino effect that comes with it. And I think it's a sort of thing that's a sort of a story you can tell better in hindsight. That's my point. Um, However, uh, fair enough. And the next time I watch it, I'll I'll rethink about it with your perspective. But Mm. for me, even though it's exquisitely crafted, kept it off my list and runners up. Okay, well, I... I adore it. I still think about it every day. That opening scene is is great. Uh, my number five is a film that I think is one of the like the two films that are on my list that are pure visceral experience. Mm-hmm. And I left the theater shaking mm-hmm. because on one hand, I had just seen an exquisitely crafted, like on a technological level, like perfectly crafted thriller. Mm-hmm. But what I was astounded by was how emotionally affected I was by gravity. Oh, I thought you were going to say Mandy. No, I know you love Mandy. <laughs> I love Mandy. Are we about to talk about Mandy? We're not about to talk about okay, Mandy. Okay, I was Man- about to say. Mandy, oh, I wouldn't Mandy, have been shocked. Mandy was like a hair, uh, a hair on my hair. On no, my no. I, Mandy, I, I respect Mandy. <clears throat> Mandy didn't hit me the way it did you or even mm. my wife, Michelle. Um, Mandy is so good, I know. I, I, I respect it. Didn't <laughs> kill me. Gravity killed me. And the reason why gravity, gravity killed me. gravity doesn't have a cheddar goblin. It's it's off. It's who do you think's got holding the camera? Oh, Cheddar Goblin. <laughs> <laughs> the Cheddar Goblin is in space, filling gravity. It's so much better now. Gravity. Why do you is, think macaroni floated by the camera? Gravity is the kind of film that I think most people would look at as sort mm. of surfacey, but when you really start analyzing it and like really mm. paying close attention, there's actually a lot going on here, and that's one of the things I love about it. Alfonso mm. Cuarón is a very technical filmmaker, but he uses his technicals in order to convey something a bit more profound. And in Gravity, Sandra Bullock uh, stars as an astronaut who we find out has joined the space program largely to get away from her problems on Earth. She had like a a tragic backstory. And uh, in the middle of a routine spacewalk, Mm -hmm. uh, there is actually an accident in space that creates a cascade of debris Mm -hmm. that is now sweeping around the entire planet Earth at high speeds. And it's basically all going to hit the space station that they're on like a hail of bullets. And it's going to destroy everything. It's going to kill them all. And within a few minutes, and it's all the opening bit is all one shot. And it's all CGI, it's in space, but it's still very impressive. The whole movie is shot that way. Yeah, basically. It's made to look like one take. Yeah, but it's it's obviously Mm. all CG, so it's easier to fake, but it's Mm. a breathtaking appearance anyway. And soon... She, uh, uh, Sandra Bullock, and like, she was there with George Clooney, so it looks mm-hmm. like it's going to be like a twofer, and it's a great... He's vanished, and he's just flying out into space, and he's going <laughs> to die. And now she, who's actually the <clears throat> least technically trained astronaut on the spacewalk, she only he was there for one expertise, mm-hmm. is now alone, floating in space, 
in orbit trying to figure out if it's even possible to stay alive. Mm. When we talk about the way that movies convey emotions, I cannot think of a better metaphor for despair <laughs> than floating in orbit in space, absolutely helpless while you watch your oxygen meter go down. Very few characters in all of movie history, and I would argue maybe no movie characters in all of movie history, could be argued to be more screwed mm. than Sandra Bullock is in Gravity. To the extent that the fact that she tries to save her own life at all is an act of absolute heroism. And when we see the depths to which she was basically kind of done with life before this all began, mm. where by the end of this incredible insanely life-threatening experience that is so thrillingly choreographed in every conceivable way. Mm. The fight to stay alive for its own sake is enough. Alfonso Cuaron took a giant blockbuster movie concept. Millions of dollars spent. Mm. You got Sandra Bullock. You got George Clooney. Shot in 3D. Shot in 3D. IMAX cameras. It's this giant blockbuster. And what is it? It's an intervention. He made a giant blockbuster suicide intervention. Hmm. For everyone in the audience who feels like they are completely hopeless and in despair, he gave us this movie Hmm. to show that it's always worth fighting. No matter how hopeless it seems, Mm. and every moment of victory can become absolutely pure. The moment in the movie where Sandra Bullock finally manages to make way to another space station and just winds up inside of it and is able to take off her spacesuit hmm. and it it's such a big obvious moment but it's earned and she all of a sudden she's just floating in zero gravity like she's in a womb hmm. and it's an obvious shot but the movie earns it because in that moment she really is reborn she has just gotten a whole new lease on life every second now she earned and she made it, and she's going to make it her own. And there's something incredibly profound about the simplicity of that. And how complicated it is to convey such a simple idea in a way that we fully believe and understand it. And that we can take it into ourselves and we can actually do something with it. Mm-hmm. I would watch Gravity on any hard day of my life. <laughs> like, I, would, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily. I have mm-hmm. other things to do. But, like, on the hardest days of my life, I, would, I could watch Gravity. And I would say to myself... You're right, I'm going to keep going. Like, it's a really, really profound film, right. I um, think. I, I have to admit, I haven't thought about Gravity a lot since I saw it. Um, it's, it didn't stick with me the way it did with you. Um, I was, or, I was or going many, through some stuff, apparently. Or, or, many, or many people, evidently. Um, here's the thing about Gravity. There are a lot of wonderful films that are about despair. Sure. And about, you were just talking about You Were Never Really Here. No, or about, Christine about, made my honorable yeah, mentions, Christine, exactly. Christine, these yeah. films that are very much and very realistically about depression. I felt no despair while watching Gravity. I, oh. I felt a, a kind of visceral desperation. Okay. But uh, I feel like Alfonso Cuaron was way more interested in the toys than he was in a story. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, Sandra Bullock uh, is a good movie star, but I think in that particular role, she's not really given a lot to act with. I think she's given more to movie star with, if you get if you take my meaning. I kind of uh, do. In, in that, we're, we're here to see... Uh, a star we like kind of being themselves surviving in a desperate situation. It all feels actually 
incredibly superficial to me. Okay, see, I understand um, I understand where you get that mm-hmm. from, but that's one of the things I actually like about the movie is the way that it, it takes our expectations of mm. superficiality and then adds more depth to that. It adds more depth mm. to, okay, we're going to see Sandra Bullock carry a whole movie all by herself. Okay, fine. That's not going to captivate us if we're not actually with her on her journey. I don't. I, there are lots of Sandra Bullock movies I give no shits about. Yeah, I, Gravity isn't, <laughs> Gravity isn't one of them. Right. You know, like so that that for me, and I think the idea of taking something that has the appearance of superficial entertainment, mm. and then if you're looking for it and if you need it in the audience, we're actually going to take this blockbuster and make something again. I think touches upon the profound. Mm. I think they went for it, and right. maybe you weren't looking for it that day. But for, for me, it's there. Okay, perhaps not. I, I appreciate that as the wonderful technical exercise that it was. Okay. Uh, special effects weren't better up to that point. Like We were just really oh, pushing, so for, yeah. pushing forward in special effects technology, and I think as an effects piece and as a, a piece of... Uh, tense disaster filmmaking, it is first rate. Yeah, um, and that's there, true too. And there is one small moment of profundity because there's a few. Uh, <laughs> well, there's actually like, a few small yeah. moments where um, where she's in inside a spacecraft, and there are little religious symbols mm. sort of hidden in the background where uh, that other astronauts had put there, not the Sandra Bullock character. Mm-hmm. And there's a bit where she realizes that she's kind of doomed, and she kind of like looks down at her hands and just says, "Nobody taught me how to pray." So she's like in this situation where she's scraping up against the infinity and facing death, and she's like looking forward at a big void. Yeah, you yeah. see what I mean, though, because like, but there's, like, there's that there's just a religious... small moment, and then they go back into sort of the technical stuff where she crashes in a I, pod, and I don't, all the rest, I don't think that's know? all technical stuff. I think mm. that's all indicative of the difficulty. Mm of finding that level of deeper purpose mm. within a day. You actually have to do <laughs> shit. Like, it's easy to think about the profound when all you have to do is, like, look out over the sea. Mm. When you actually have to do shit, like, I love that moment you're, you're talking about mm. because there's actually this old, like, sort of religious debate that you'd have in, like, Sundays. I've been to a few mm. Sunday school classes, and one of the things they talked about was, okay, could someone who was raised on an island all by themselves, like Blue Lagoon style, uh-huh. and they've never read the Bible, could that person be saved? Mm. And the argument was, it's, it's, technically, yes, but they'd have to do more work. they have to like find it within... Like themselves, at least that was the argument I was made here. And S- saved by saved, you mean like converted to Catholicism? Right? Well, could could they go to heaven? Okay, that was the question. Sure, because they would. Well, I know I believe that, but yeah. the idea was we believe the people I was talking to believed in the Bible is what saves people, and oh, as a result, okay. So, yeah. like, if you don't know that Jesus exists, if you mm. don't know that you could be saved, is it possible to go to heaven? Mm. And it this is kind of what that's about is if you are secular mm. and yet you are approaching this level of infinity can you within yourself mm. find greater depth and i think Rainstone finds it in herself mm. and i think that's something that i really took away from it okay so anyway I, we could disagree on this one mm. but i think it's a great movie let's move All on right. um something that uh, a film that has really tapped into the plight of this generation specifically the plight of being in your late 20s, <laughs> and the plight of struggling to make it, okay. and the plight of not making it, and trying to get by on couch surfing and charm and how that's just sort of wearing out its welcome, and you have to grow up and finally become an adult, was all encapsulated perfectly in Francis Ha. Oh, okay. Uh, no, I wasn't where I thought you were going with the, that. The film by Noah Baumbach and Greta Gerwig. Um, mm-hmm. Greta, Greta Gerwig co-wrote, co-wrote it and it, starred yeah. in it. It's kind of her movie. Uh, Noah Baumbach has a director's credit. I like to 
thank Noah Baumbach that she, that she talk, did a lot of the directing. Noah as well. Baumbach has spoken very directly about the influence Greta Gerwig has had on his career. And yeah, I think it's yeah. fair to say that a lot of his best movies are the ones that he did with her. Yeah. yeah. Well, Greenberg is only so I said a so, lot, but yeah, <laughs> I said a lot. But I think Francis Ha, uh, this this wonderful little low budget uh, indie drama, really captures something very vital and very important about what it is to be a young person right now in America. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, I put it on my list of the best of the decade because it does kind of define the decade in a really important way. I totally uh, see not it. not yeah. just in terms of. Uh, like sort of the modern experience, but in how the 20-something is struggling to succeed, is told that if they continue to struggle, they can succeed, and is not succeeding. And then what and how you, frustrating that is we're, to ne- we're never told when to stop struggling. Yeah, yeah. When, we're never told. When, when do you settle? When do you give up? And yeah. is giving up selling out? Or is giving up the next step in growing up? And yeah. I think, I think this would make a good double feature, actually, with Monsters University. Which... Uh, <laughs> It is. Is, is another it's, wonderful it's, film about being in college and learning to let go of your dream. It's, yeah. In, in, it, in favor, find a new dream. In favor you know. of something that you have talent for. Yeah, an I think, aptitude, yeah. yeah. I actually really like Monsters University. A lot of I, people give that movie crap. I think it's out. one of Pixar's better films. Yeah. I mean, maybe not top five, but it's really good. But yeah, Fran- Francis Ha really does put a, a, a finger right on the pulse of that, uh, that period in your life when... Uh, Hey. Struggling to succeed at your dream Sorry, Luke is, is, is starting to look really unseemly. Because I, I think Frances Ha is twenty. She's all on the cusp of thirty. She's like twenty eight. Yeah, she's getting. Yeah, she's getting to the point mm. where you know that kind that, of youthful dreaming is no longer that, romantic. It's yeah. getting a little okay. You need you need to be able to pay your rent. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. She wants to be a da- Frances Ha wants to be a dancer. Frances. Yeah. Well, her, her last name actually isn't Ha. It's like the, there's a the, joke. There's a joke. There's a joke about that it. explains yeah. what it is. Her, yeah. But Frances wants to be a dancer. But she's twenty eight. She's never gotten like a real dancing gig, and she's just barely making ends meet with all these other odd jobs that's a true experience sure. and i think that's something everybody of a certain age can relate to another important wrinkle in this is her best friend uh francis has to learn to uh have a new kind of relationship with her best friend that also is not something that you can behave like you're still in college well because about. her best friend is like it's, it's almost a little bit like ghost world her best friend mm-hmm. is like starting to date starting, seriously yeah, and get her career become, in order yeah, and, a little bit more successful and, and as a result she's not like on call lot, the way she yeah, used a to a lot be. of their friendship is predicated on the notion that they would be kind of for lack of a better term losers together if they're yeah. both not succeeding if they're both not succeeding together then at least they have each other but what if one of them starts succeeding this is something we touched upon when we reviewed Tuca and Bertie yeah. on Cancel Too yeah, Soon because point, it yeah. is about these people who are pushing thir- and, and that, that show the bird people have just turned 30 mm-hmm and adulthood has now officially begun. You can't pretend you're an adolescent anymore when you're 30. I think Tuca and Birdie was a little bit more savvy about it than even Francis Ha. But oh, I, I, Francis Ha was an interesting movie because I remember mm. we saw this movie together, actually, the first time. Uh-huh. And you were enchanted with it. I know Alonzo Duralde, another film mm. critic who hosts um, uh, Linoleum Knife mm. and Breakfast All Day. Uh, brilliant critic, and you should totally follow him if you don't already. Um, you guys were both in love with this movie, and I was yeah, like, "Oh, okay, yeah. cool." Well, I, I'm hitting Noah Baumbach's a little hit or miss with me, but I'll check it out. And I love Greta Gerwig, mm-hmm. and I wasn't feeling it. And hmm. what I came to realize later, okay, uh, like years later, because this came out in like early when did this got 2012, 2012 yeah. yeah. How, how old were you in 2012? <sighs> I was probably about 30. Okay, yeah. So you're you're, you're, you're just you're, the right age. No, I was just the wrong age oh, okay. because. 
I was pissed. I <laughs> guess it got you a little it too was, close. It was, well, maybe not a little too close, but I was a little bit, it was just like, hey, come on. <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying here. here. What are you, like, I was a little, I felt a little, it was a little, a little confrontational. <laughs> for me. But that's, but that's good, though. And yeah. I, at the time, it just, yeah, I appreciated everything that went into it, but I personally wasn't feeling it. Mm. If I watched it now, I think I'd be a lot more zen about it. But at the time, I was a little too close. Mm. Um, it's a very masterfully made film. There's actually other, like, my actually my favorite uh, Noah Baumbach, Greta Gerwig joint this decade is Mistress America, which I think that's also very good. Tragically yeah. overlooked. It's very funny. It tackles similar ideas, but from a different perspective. I, I love it a lot. Mm. Uh, but yeah, Francis Ha is great. I agree. It's just not mm. my top ten because probably because okay. I haven't watched it since that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I've <sighs> again, who we are when we're introduced to yeah. a movie can make a big difference. Well, and, and a lot of films are for people that have a certain kind of perspective. This yeah. is um, I get really pissed off when teachers decide to assign the Catcher in the Rye to high school students. Yeah, you're not there because yet. The, the Catcher in the Rye, yes, it's about a high school student, and yes, I think it does capture a very important facet of being a dissatisfied youth mm-hmm. and have you know being in the state where you actually do have a bit of intelligence, but you're not smart enough to express that intelligence in any kind of meaningful way. Yeah. Uh, you know, conventional morality doesn't appeal to you. You're dissatisfied, but there's not a way you're able to get that outlet. And I think yeah. that is a very true to the adolescent experience. That's right. It's a, that's why it's a classic work of literature. Uh-huh. Um, but teens are still going through that. Yeah, we're, we have no perspective you don't un- yet. Yeah, you don't really yeah. understand that until maybe you are 30 and you read The Catcher in the Rye and you understand that about yourself already because there's some distance between you and your adolescent mindset. Yeah, Catcher in the Rye is a story about childhood filtered through a guy who, after childhood, went to World War II mm. and, and experienced some shit yeah. and now looks at his, at his youth differently. And I think you need some perspective on youth. And I that agree. might be the same thing about Francis I feel Hall. the same way about Great Gatsby. When we read it in high school, I'm like, mm-hmm. this is a mid-20s book. <laughs> you need to, I feel like you need to go through some shit before you really get Great Gatsby. Yeah. I, I, I feel but, the same anyway. way about Romeo and Juliet, but that's me. Anyway, uh, but, we, could, we could debate that all day. Yeah. Um, my next film uh, is actually, it's a tie, but there, there are two films that go together, like all on right. purpose. Okay. Uh, and it's I, I, I want to credit all the directors but some of the directors cannot be named because their country would kill them <laughs> uh, it's Joshua Oppenheimer yeah, yeah. and Anonymouses uh-huh. uh, and I think I think one of them might have been named since uh, documentary series uh, The Act of Killing and The Look of Silence which are two of the most ingeniously conceived and absolutely disturbing documentaries I've ever seen in my life mm. Um, if you've never seen them, uh, they are stories of a horrible genocide mm. from the perspective, the first one, Act of Killing, uh, is from the perspective of the people who perpetrated it the, the, and are the, currently seen in their in their yeah, community was, as heroes. There uh, Decades ago, there was a genocide in Indonesia and mm-hmm. the, in milita- the, the military took over and c- c- murdered everybody and were essentially successful. Yeah. They murdered all their opponents, they took charge of the government, and they've been in power ever since. Mm. And we've gotten to the point where they're just seen as sort of like grandfatherly leaders. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, because, uh, Oppenheimer's uh, credited co-director is Christine Sin. Christine, okay. Uh, and then there's an, an, an Indonesian filmmaker who is not Anonymous, yeah. Um, yeah, and so Oppenheimer, in the act of killing, mm-hmm. he starts interviewing these people about how they did it, and they're very happy to show you. Here's how to kill a person. Here's how we committed genocide 
by hand, mm. individually, and they show you the right way to strangle somebody. And here's exactly where we did it. Mm. And they're very happy. They're thrilled. They think they're, this is this is a point of pride for them. And it's repulsive, but they're not living in our moral universe. Yeah, they're, they're the victors in their minds. The, everything they did was okay. They're in charge now, yeah. and there's no question. Yeah, they they were you know they mm. the winners rewrote the history book, and then Oppenheimer. I don't know who's. I don't know if it was. I, I, we interviewed him actually. I'm trying to remember exactly how he said the idea came about. Mm. The idea came to give the people who committed a genocide cameras and a crew mm-hmm. and costumes and let them make a movie about it from their perspective. Mm-hmm. How, and, how do they see themselves? And they made a grand Hollywood musical. They made a movie that make, turns them into Humphrey fucking Bogart and Gene Kelly. In their eyes, they were gods. And it's so fucking bizarre to get inside the mind of some of the worst human beings on the planet and see that they have no concept of that. And then to see the follow-up film, The Look of Silence, which I do feel is incredibly valuable to see them both. The Look of Silence uh, is the perspective of a guy who's actually an optometrist. And he... His brother free eye exams. Yeah, he has, offers eye. free eye exams to the people who perpetrated the genocide, many mm-hmm. of whom we met in the previous film. And his brother, we know, but the people who are getting the eye exams don't know, mm-hmm. was one of the most famous victims of the genocide. Like everyone knew. Mm-hmm. You know, just it, it, the name was heard everywhere. And so it's just a documentary of him talking to these guys, and they're talking about everything that they did. And they're all proud of it, just like they were in Act of Killing. They're happy. They're just, they'll tell you anything. And then the moment, the look of silence that we're talking about mm-hmm. is when he drops the bomb that I'm that guy's brother. And you suddenly like and see them change. And their tune changes immediately. They start denying things that they just admitted to. And all of a sudden, these people who thought of themselves as gods are rocketed back down to a moral universe for a split second mm. before the denials come in and before they start protecting their own ego. And that is some of the most invaluable cataloging of human experience I've seen this entire decade. Mm. Where you just see that there is a humanity in evil, but it gets talked down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because they can't they can't live with that image well, of themselves. What, uh, what I learned from those documentaries, and I saw different cuts of them even... Um, Oh yeah, because there's a really that, long cut of active. Really I think I saw the longer killing. cut of active. Killing. The longer cut of active killing actually doesn't. It's just more of the same. It's, yeah. There's not like a new bombshell in that one. Uh, also, when you make a documentary film, you shoot like literally a hundred hours of footage in the first cut, and then you have to shave yeah. it down to like a ninety-minute. I mean, film. some some documentaries yeah. cut it down from thousands of hours of footage. It's yeah, yeah, in, yeah. I don't know how you do it. It's really incredible. Um, that uh, these people who perpetrated this genocide didn't necessarily do so. Out of some kind of how how to put this righteousness, like moral like, purpose. Like, 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 they yeah, like they didn't think a, there was a good reason for it. Exactly. There's not a purpose to it other than to do it. And when we see them, as we catch up with them, they're not sophisticated people. Yeah, they, they don't think of the world in any kind of sophisticated terms. Like when they you watch no a World War II movie, when you watch a World War II movie, and yeah. there are scenes of the Nazis and they're having parties and they're talking about all their dignified ideals and why mm. the Holocaust is okay because we believe this, 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 mm. and this, and 
that comes across as this weird, evil, intellectual exercise. Exactly, exactly. That's and not what we're talking I'm, about. I'm guessing that uh, uh, there weren't that many conversations in the rise of Nazi Germany, mm-hmm. and there definitely weren't those conversations in uh, during the genocide in Indonesia. Yeah. Uh, and I think what the act of killing really revealed was that there isn't a thought behind these things. Yeah. There is just a complete, utter lack of morality. Yeah. The cruelty there's, there's no is the point self-analysis. It. It's not, There's it's, no self-analysis The whatsoever. point isn't to get to another end, to commit this genocide in order to achieve something. Mm-hmm. Gaining power and creating misery is the point. Yeah. And it's actually... And all those other uh, things are excuses that are come up with after the fact. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and uh, I, I think that actually shed a really big light on a lot of this rise of this current rise of author- authoritarianism. Yeah. Um, I was a little bit down on these two movies for a brief period. I remember it felt like because, everyone was uh, talking about them, and then in the late two thousands, they sort of fell in well, fa- out of favor. It's because they do possess an element of like gotcha showiness. Like mm-hmm. the filmmakers are trying to get these guys. They almost and, too high concept. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that it, it actually serves this sort of moral purpose, and that gives it a little bit too of a melodramatic heft. Yeah. But then when I saw uh, I saw a film just last year called Loro, which was about the rise of Silvio Berlusconi in mm. Italy, and how I haven't he, seen was, that, yeah. he was just uh, th- this rich, you know, gad about town sort mm-hmm. of guy who was you know not, slicked back hair and liked to go to bikini parties and take drugs and pal around with his rich buddies. And he thought if he became prime minister of Italy, that mm-hmm. he would just keep on doing that. That that was his goal, yeah, just to keep having parties. He didn't realize that that's a job that you have to do stuff. Yeah, and he became the leader of Italy. I so know, it's insane. It, it though that that film and this one kind of reveal that the people who kind of stumble into charge, especially the evil people, don't have a plan. Yeah. We like to think that they do yeah, because they, that makes the world make a little bit more sense. It, 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 yeah, if there's some sort of logical, if there's some sort of logical thought process behind and you know, like steps that they were going to take to get into power and then wield that power to some sort of end, it's mm-hmm. like I'm going to take over the world so I can do X, like in a James Bond movie. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. makes moral sense to a logical mind. What that film and what uh, Loro understand is that. That logic doesn't exist in the mind of the authoritarian. I feel like there are certain films that we sometimes mm. roll our eyes at because we feel like they're making a rather obvious point. Mm. But then something happens in real life and we realize just how important it is to reassert that point. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I think the act of killing and Lucas Island's got taken for granted a little. And, they, oh, and, for sure they and in the yeah. last couple of years, I think they deserve a second look because, mm. okay, yeah, maybe they're so high concept, maybe a little too much for their own good. You can argue that. Mm. I disagree. I think we're we're approaching something that is entirely unique mm-hmm. in documentary film and yeah, those, it, those, not, are, be, not because of the high concept but because yeah. of the people and what they got yeah. out of them those are excellent choices yeah what's um, your what's your next pick my next three my next pick my number three my next three <laughs> my next uh, pick is uh, the tree of life which i've been talking about all decade um, ah, yes. uh, my runners up T- terrence malick uh i think this is sort of like his masterwork if you, you can call it that he uh is dealing with some very earthy ground level things in that he's telling a semi autobiographical story of his own childhood in Texas about how he felt about his father, who was a very stern figure and how about he felt about his mother, who was a much gentler figure. Um, he stages them in uh, like religious ways of thinking because there's a lot of talk of Christianity and God. So mm-hmm. his father's like this old Testament God, his mother's a more new Testament God, this kind of mm-hmm. gentle and hard Beings that are in his life, yeah, and he's think, stern and wears ties, yeah. and she twirls around in a leaves, in, a lot. In, yeah, and like looks at the sky. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. And 
we get to see you know the, the main character be born and grow up and grow into a manhood and indeed mm. get a glimpse of the afterlife in, yeah. a, in an important like a, the way. The complete human experience yeah, what they're yeah. trying to give you. Yeah. And I think in telling the story of one human life, and a lot of people really kind of recoiled at some of his bigger ambitions, mm. he's trying to make the experience of one human life into essentially the experience of the entire universe. Right. That our emotional states and our lives and our existence here is something that is reaching the infinite. And mm-hmm. there are so few films that are able actually to sort of reach out and scrape that infinity. Yeah. I think The Tree of Life does it. I agree. I do. Mm. It's a big swing, and I get why mm. a lot of people thought it was maybe too much to bear. But if, yeah, Terrence Malick manages to go from the beginning of the universe through dinosaurs mm. and then hit one kid. Yeah. And all of those things, all, all of these things, the creation of the universe, all those dinosaurs yeah. made that kid and that kid and you, whoever mm. is listening, all of those things led to you. Mm. And every once in a while, I think it does behoove us to think about just how absolutely grand that is. <laughs> mm-hmm. Not in an ego way, just in terms of like a wow, all of existence, and my experience of it is all I'm ever going to see, so I kind of am the universe. It's it's, it's within you. It's the the, the Spinoza thing. Um, Huge. The... uh I remember Roger Ebert's review of this because he really loved it. He put it on his best films of best of the decade when he was doing the sight and sound poll. That oh, was yeah. like it came out the year before. It was like, yeah, that deserves to be on there. Yeah, which is a big, uh, and, which um, is a yeah, he, big choice. Roger Ebert wrote essays about how it's his job essentially to put in words to emotional experiences. Mm. Trying to describe an emotion is a big part of his job, and uh, he was sort of constantly on the lookout for new vocabulary and new studies that were kind of zeroing in on the the emotional experience of of humanity. Yeah. And he had recently stumbled upon the word um, elevation as an emotion. Mm. Elevation is an emotion. Feeling like you are being risen up. That you are seeing something grander. That you are connecting to something very, very large. And he began putting that in his reviews a lot. This is a film that makes you experience elevation. And I think that's very true of The Tree of Life. Yeah. This is something that's not merely here to make you feel. It's here to connect you with the universe. Yeah. It is a holy experience. Well, and something you didn't even talk about that I really mm. admire about this movie, and it's something that I don't see a lot of other films doing effectively, even when they're absolutely trying, Some, and something like Eternal Sunshine comes to mind, mm. where this is a movie about memory. Yeah, this yeah. is not a story like, for, like a, a typical narrative. In fact, a lot of this is from the perspective you can call it that of the older version of this character played by Sean Penn looking back over his life. And what you realize is that the narrative language that Terrence Malick is using to convey this life story is the narrative language of our own brains mm-hmm. and, and, and the and way how that our, our minds play things out of order and mm-hmm. intensify and change yeah. things, and how early memories are nowhere near as vivid as later memories, mm-hmm. and how. Uh, there are memories you have that can't even be trusted. There's at least one shot in this movie which is inexplicable. Mm. There's no explanation there's, there's, for it. There's it's, a, mov- a moving chair. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 a ghost or a misplaced memory or well, he's remembering it wrong. Who knows? But that's the way the mind works. That is the way the mind you. works. Yeah. It's, yeah. To, to to quote Captain Benjamin Cisco, it's not linear. It's uh, not. But I, that's something I love about it. Mm. And I, this is one of the reasons why. Again, not to pick on Boyhood again, but like <laughs> Boyhood what is, nearly made my list. I know I it love did. Boyhood. I know it did, and I respect yeah. the film. But like, it's the reason why it didn't even make my runners up is because. Again, I don't see a lot of perspective in it. And Tree Mm. of Life is kind of pure perspective. Mm. Tree of Life is 
trying to recreate not just what happened, but how we feel about it mm-hmm. and how it affects us and affects the way our brain works. Yeah, and I, I do feel like there's a handful of films out there, not a lot, and I think some try, but I, I and some try really flagrantly to be about the human brain <laughs> and what it is like yeah. to have a brain and what the brain does. And I think Tree of Life is one of the films that comes closest. Mm-hmm. And of course, I only know that from my own perspective. But when I talk to other people and they see Tree of Life and they have a similar perspective, I know my brain is not alone. Mm-hmm. And other people actually do experience yeah, the world in a similar way. And that makes me closer to whatever is out there. <laughs> if you call it God, fine. You yeah. call it just the human experience yeah, um, and the shared experience of life itself. That uh, to, movie brings us close uh, to, to it. Terrence Malick uh, rather explicitly calls that God. Yeah. Uh, but it, even if you're not a believer in God, there is uh, an, an attempt to connect us all in a bigger way. Yeah. And I think Terrence, even if you're not into Terrence Malick's God language, you can still take a lot from the Tree of Life because he is aspiring to express something that is very real. I agree. Mm-hmm. All right, well, my number three, mm-hmm. um, I like horror movies. Who doesn't like horror movies? It's actually weird that none of my picks have been horror movies until <laughs> now. And I was looking at my list, and I'm like, I loved a lot of horror movies this decade. Yeah. This is weird. Sergio even loves them. He's so scared. He's going, ah, horror movies. He's, he's, he's giving a, a horror movie sound effect, the cat yowling in the darkness. Um, and I don't think there was any horror movie that <coughs> scared me, mm-hmm. grabbed me, Amused me, made me think, challenged me, and holds up to repeat viewings as well this decade as Get Out. Okay, Get Out. Get Good Out choice. is the shit. <laughs> Get Out yeah. is one of the great cinematic debuts as a director. Mm-hmm. There's, We all know some of the big ones. Your Citizen Kane's, your Night of the Hunters. This is one of those, as far as I'm concerned, in terms of just nailing it on the first go. Uh, So I assume you've seen it. It's a big hit. But if you haven't, it is a story of a young black man played by Daniel Kaluuya, uh, who is dating a white woman. And she invites him to visit her bourgeois liberal parents for the weekend. And initially, the only horror is he's only he's going to be the only person of color there. And that's very alienating and very weird. And everything they say is ostensibly, like, woke. But it's actually deeply seated in racism that they don't seem conscious of. And and as it turns out, he's not the only person of color there. There's a maid. And there's the groundskeeper. (laughs) And Uh they're all all the the help, as it were. Yeah. and One of them played by Lakeith Stanfield. uh, Lakeith Stanfield's played by, is a guest. Oh, he's the, okay. He's he's one of the guests, but um, oh, there's a party, oh, yeah, that's right. and he mm. sees like, and he, he then clue actually sees, hey, it's good to see uh, uh, another brother here, and like he stands up, it's like, oh, hello, and all of a sudden he's he's kind of got his white voice. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry to bother oh, oh, you. Oh God, he did it twice. Yeah, 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 and it's mm. this sense of absolute isolation in a cultural experience is played by Jordan Peele just on the knife edge between humor, like this is a Saturday Night Live sketch, mm. to Actual genuine tension and terror because he is alone, mm-hmm. purely alone. Yeah, and to the extent when when the movie finally tips into actual horror territory, he has played completely fair and totally set you up for it. And it's also a huge surprise. And then when the movie finally tells you what it's actually about, and you realize how it is actually about the absolute insidious depth to which racism has infected every single aspect of the American experience and even white thought Mm -hmm. and also to the extent to which this film is actually about 
black people seeing the experience of these kinds of terrors from the outside in a sense of absolute like helplessness, mm-hmm. which is it's literalized in a way in the film. I don't want to ruin for you in case you haven't seen it. And then you realize that on top of all of that, this is a story about how horror movies about the black experience almost never get made. <laughs> and a lot of people are just sort of trapped in this film, witnessing it as if it was a horror movie. Yeah. Have, have you seen Horror Noir yet? I've not seen that documentary. Right. It's amazing. It's really great. It's yeah, really, yeah. Really there, great. Check out Horror Noir on, yeah. on Shudder. Uh, one, of, one of my favorite... Uh, 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 whatever. This is one of my favorite movies of the decade. And I, what I love about this movie is every single time you watch... This movie, and mm-hmm. I've seen it a bunch of times now, you realize that every single line of dialogue works five different ways. <laughs> the first time when you don't know what's going on, it works one way. Mm-hmm. When you know what's going on, it works another way. When you know what's going on so well, you realize, wait a minute. You know that line when ever, all like the, the allegedly woke white people say they'd vote for Obama a third time if they could? Mm-hmm. That might not mean what you think it does once you know the plot of the movie. Yeah, yeah. And you're like, Oh shit! That opens up like a huge, a huge, yeah. huge, huge new idea here. That oh my god, this really is one of the most intense motion pictures, and the ending is powerful and cathartic and in ah. And what's crazy about it is that it had a different ending before Trump was elected. Yeah, yeah. and they changed the ending when Trump was elected because it feels like we're in a different political space, and they picked the perfect ending. Yeah, it would have yeah. worked great. Initially, but it would have been for a different time, and they made it perfectly topical. They evolved as needed. Yeah. Um, Get Out is an absolutely brilliant motion picture. Mm-hmm. I think it is one of the great artistic accomplishments of the yeah. decade. I love it. Uh, we already know my number one. We already well, talked about. Uh, are you such a beautiful, one? No, Well, we're, we're to number two. Okay. Uh, but the number two on my list is uh, Holy Motors, another film oh. I've talked about all decade. There you go. Uh, Holy Motors is uh, a. A whiz-bang piece of cinema. Aleos <laughs> uh, Carax made a film about sort of the mutability of film. Uh, he has... Hey, you're taking my list away. I just wanted to see it. All right. <laughs> well, it's crossing off as I go. Okay. Okay, good. Um, but yeah, he has created a film about sort of the way film functions, and through that, the way the human soul functions. Um the film opens with Leos Carax playing himself in a little dingy motel room. He opens a mysterious door in his hotel room. He's thinking about film, you see. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> he slips through an aperture in the, the wall, and he en- en- enters into a movie theater where there's a movie on screen, and everybody in the audience is asleep. <laughs> film is now just putting you to sleep, sheeple. <laughs> it then cuts to uh, Dennis Levant, who is essentially every character in a movie it has this weird kind of meta quality that every person you meet is more or less the same person Mm. and every person you meet contains many people in the Walt Whitman sense of the word yeah um so uh yeah Dennis Levant he starts his daily job which appears to be uh going into the back of a, a limousine putting on a different disguise and playing a different role for hire in a public space and in one, he's an old beggar. In one, he's doing motion capture for some video game. 
the, and we never see the game. We just see him in the motion capture suit. In one, he's this uh, subterranean ghoul monster called, I think he's called Monsieur Merd in the credits. <laughs> wears this sort of green suit and has wild red hair and he kidnaps Ava Mendes and carries her down into the sewers where she teaches him about cigarettes. And she plays herself, right? She plays her, Well, she plays a model, so she's okay. arguably herself. Got but, yeah, and, and he ends up transforming her and there's a as we go along and we meet some other people along the way who are also doing this sort of mutable character work for a living mm-hmm. and I think this goes to something very important a about cinema because a we see actors pretending to be different people all the time so we kind of accept the mutability of their reality we also uh, see the mutability of the people we meet in the street every day. Everybody's going to present differently and become a different person, and you don't know what their job was getting into the, their, quote, their limo that morning and transforming themselves into who they're going to be that day. Um, I think identity is something that is actually very fluid among humanity, mm-hmm. and uh, latching on to an identity is something that's very important when you're young, but as you get older, and I think Leos Carax kind of understands this, you can deliberately change yourself, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worst, sometimes just to experiment with your own humanity. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, he's exploring these weird, heady philosophical ideas in this really entertaining film that is colorful and strange and bizarre. There's an intermission where there's a bunch of people just sort of charging around with an accordion singing a song. There's nothing to do with the actual main (laughs) narrative or like life takes an intermission for a little bit here and there. And uh, then he retires at the end of the day. He goes back home and he's looking after chimpanzees. And uh, (laughs) you tell me what that's about. I couldn't tell you. This is the one film on your list I haven't seen other Mm. than Endless Poetry. Oh, okay. I, I, I never got around to it. I actually feel really terrible. He kept I, telling me to see it. I have it. You can borrow my I, Let borrow me borrow it. I will watch it sometime. Uh, yeah, I'll watch I, it sometime. I have, I I have Holy Motors on Blu-ray. Uh, the Shot Factory put out a very nice edition. Um, yeah, this this one was just thrilling to watch. Okay. I, I, I lo- You'll notice a lot of the films on my list were just these sort of colorful, abstract, yeah. uh, very artistic things, and I feel like Holy Motors is the best of them. Well, and a lot of my movies are about harrowing emotional mm. experiences, but mm. they're also... Again, there's two movies that I saw this year, that, uh, this decade, that mm. just left me like shaking as I left the theater. One mm. was Gravity, and right. the other one was my number two. All right. But the other one, but much like Gravity, although it thanked me to an even greater extent, mm. uh, Mad Max Fury Road is really about something. Oh, Mad Max Fury Road. Mad Max Fury Road is my right. number two. Mad Max Fury Road is another one that is pure cinema. <laughs> like, it is so just visceral and <laughs> pulse-pounding and exciting. Yeah. If there was no audio, you'd get it. Like, it is really fantastic. I assume you've seen it. If you haven't, uh, it's the post-apocalypse. It was terrifically popular. It, yeah, well, was like didn't make a billion dollars, yeah. but it was very popular. Yeah. It's the post-apocalypse, and Max, now played by Tom Hardy, is... Uh, Do they name him? Do they call him Max? Yeah, in the he's movie? called Max. He okay. said, like, I think one of the first lines of the voiceover is, "My name is Max." Oh, okay. Um, for, what's Max's last name? Oh, it's uh, uh, Ratajkowski. Close, Rakatansky. Rakatansky. Mad yeah. Max Rakatansky. I was thinking of uh, the model Emily Ratajkowski. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he is kidnapped, and he is dragged into a fascistic society in which the scarcity of water, not mm. oil, like it had been in previous Mad Max movies, uh, has led to a bizarre culture in which. Uh, rule is held through theocracy, through a belief that their great leader, the Immortan Joe, is God, and that 
as God, he gets to decide how resources are handled and who or what is property. And in their world, women are property. Mm -hmm. And uh, over the course of the film, very, very quickly, um, his great... Her name is her, her title is Imperator, but basically she's a general. Mm-hmm. Imperator Furiosa, played by the great Charlize Theron, uh, kidnaps all of his royal his brides yeah. and takes them and send, brings them to freedom. And through a series of insane action sequences, Max ends up on the journey with mm-hmm. them. Now, on one hand, Mad Max Fury Road is just one crazy long chase. They'd go in that direction. And then they turn around. That's the movie. But that, again, through simplicity, we can actually find a certain level of profundity. And through that narrative simplicity, and through the great specificity of the world that George Miller creates, every character is enriched and every character is deeply affected by the way that these post-apocalyptic scenarios that we've created in our fiction have therefore affected all of society and how people are treated and how men are turned into this cult of toxic masculinity where they think that appeasing a father figure is worth losing their life over and that even though their entire lifestyle is just giving them cancer it's totally worth it Mm. because dad says it's fine Mm. so the first half of the movie is our characters running away from their problems and who can blame them second half is running to them And and, and confronting them Narrative simplicity, absolute great driving device for a chase movie. Mm. We're just gonna we're just gonna drive past the people chasing us in the other direction. <laughs> wait a come, wait a come, wait, come back here! Oh, oh shit! Gotta, gotta turn around, boys. On top of it all, this is the great action movie. Mm. This is like when you think of the great action movies. This is like right up there with Die Hard mm. in terms of how expertly crafted. The actual action storytelling is, and of course, this is one of the great stunt spectaculars in movie That's history. That's for sure. Yeah. When you're watching, you know, Charlie Theron drive a tanker truck full of water while a whole bunch of guys on motorcycles are flying over that motorcycle on ramps, dropping grenades on it, and you realize they didn't fake that, <laughs> and you're like, "Holy fucking shit!" <laughs> it is seriously you just absolutely exhilarated the entire time, and then again the level of detail, the absolute richness of the characters, and we're using this all to explore ideas of authoritarianism and misogyny and resource scarcity, and how this is not just an excuse to be badass. Like I love the John Wick movies; mm. they're pretty much just an excuse to be badass. Yeah. Mad Max Fury Road is actually about. Things and you can have your cake and eat it too, and your cake will also have a guy on top of it with a flamethrower guitar. <laughs> so it's the second most metal film of the decade after Mandy. After Mandy, I can handle yeah. that. <laughs> I can, I can. I think it's a better movie, but I can handle it's the second most metal. Mandy is so fucking metal. All right, your number one was "It's Such a Beautiful Day" yeah. and great pick. Yeah, I love that it's the only film that's on both of our lists. It, isn't that odd? That's weird, yeah. right? Um, but uh, uh, mm. even though I respect all your picks, hey, 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 come on. Bad cats. Mm. My number one mm. is a cheat because it's a it's a tie, but it's mm. actually some people talked about like, ooh, what filmmaker was on the best role this okay. decade? Mm. And a lot of people would say someone like uh, Denis Villeneuve who made a lot of great movies in a row. Ryan Coogler mm-hmm. made nothing but great movies. However, I don't think any filmmaker made as many profound movies in a row mm. as Mamoru Hosoda. 
So my number one pick is actually say Scorsese. Scorsese also had a great decade. There's no denying mm. that. But for me, for my money, and again, I don't. This is the one I was thinking. I don't think anyone else is putting any of these movies on their list, and I think that's a shame. Mamoru Hosoda w- was operating on another level than any other filmmaker for me this entire decade, and he made four feature films that are actually all directly connected through the issues of fantastical realism and family. Mm. Uh, he made a film called Summer Wars, which technically came out in China in twenty nine in two thousand and nine, but came out here in twenty ten. Mm-hmm. Uh, he made a movie called Wolf Children. He made a movie called The Boy and the Beast. And made a movie called Mirai. Mm-hmm. Every single one of them is about <laughs> a really rich human connection told through fantastical storytelling. So in Summer Wars, it is a story about a family reunion uh, in which one of the guests ends up being embroiled in a futuristic hacking scheme that ends up with like every interconnected internet system in the world turning on humanity and creating our destruction and doom and all of a sudden that family becomes a microcosm for all life on the planet and all life on that planet is going to come together and actually succeed in the face of apocalyptic horror it is one of the very few sci-fi films that actually earns hope Okay, a lot of sci-fi films are not about hope a lot of sci-fi films are very cynical. This is a film about how humanity will persevere and you buy it. And on top of it all, it has cool action sequences, but it all takes place at a house while everyone's talking about how much they love their grandma. It's You've never seen a movie like it. It's absolutely fantastic. Wolf Children is about a woman who falls in love with a guy who happens to be a werewolf. And she has his two werewolf kids. And then he dies. And now she's stuck with two werewolf kids. Now, if you thought kids were little monsters to begin with, wait until they're actually monsters. <laughs> now, any American movie, that would be Hotel Transylvania, and it would be mm. fine. Here, this is actually a story about the sort of the connection a mom can have with her kids when they are completely living a different experience from mm. her. And how she makes all these sacrifices in order for these kids who have very unique needs to have the absolute best life they can have. And how they turn out completely unexpectedly in a really beautiful way. Boy and the Beast is about a boy who feels completely unloved. His mother dies. His dad abandoned him. He's just some guy out there somewhere. And he ends up being picked up by an underground world of animal monsters. And he ends up being... This is one I didn't see. This one's great. And he ends up being tutored uh, by a great warrior who is also a shiftless lout who has nothing to offer in terms of wisdom. He can teach the kid how to fight, Mm -hmm. but he can't teach the kid how to think or grow up. And they end up teaching each other. And boy, did the ending of this one, which came out shortly after my dad died, make me cry like a Aww. maniac. <laughs> and it is absolutely, it's a very odd narrative structure, this one. I don't want to ruin it for you. Just you don't know where it's going. Mm-hmm. And it's so gorgeous. I've never seen a movie do that with a whale. I will forever where that is. Mm-hmm. And then lastly, Mirai, which is actually the story about a family from the perspective of a really little kid. Like a toddler. Like yeah. a toddler who doesn't understand context. And when it, all of a sudden he's no longer the only child mm-hmm. and there's a baby in the house and he doesn't see everything revolving around him, he starts to panic. And that's when he starts being visited by older versions of his younger sister. And like the dog all of a sudden is a person. Can, and can he, speak to him and literally too. There's yeah. there's scenes where these fantasy creatures are in, incontrovertibly real. Yeah, you'd think this would be like imaginary friend thing, but mm. like no, there's plot elements that don't make sense unless this is real. Mm. And you realize, and he starts to realize in a very childlike way that he is not the center of the universe, and how that is a mind blowing revelation 
to all of a sudden realize you are part of a tapestry. You are part of a family. You are part of a lineage. And everyone who loves you and everyone you love is affected by you and your choices. And that is the kind of story that is incredibly difficult to tell in live action because very few child actors are that good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, if you're trying to tell a story about a four-year-old who is that profound, mm -hmm. good luck. But Mariah gets there. All of these movies weave in and out of each other thematically and create this incredibly powerful perspective on humanity mm. told through the most absolutely fantastical, wonderful, unpredictable ways. Every single one of these movies made me cry. Aww. Every single one of these movies challenged what I think were would typically be considered narrative convention. Mm -hmm. And every single one of these movies is a movie that most people I know haven't seen. And I really, 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 really hope you check them out. Yeah. Because together, I couldn't think... I was like, which film to pick? And then I was like, all of they all together. They all connect. I never really thought of it before. He's been making a movie about the same things from different perspectives and different family members this entire time. Absolutely stunning. God, I love those movies. All right, real, real fast. Run right. down your runners-up. because this, gonna... this is just a list of titles. I'm not yep. going to talk about any of them. Nope. The End of the Tour. Great. Uncle Boon Me, Who Can Recall His Past Lives. Still haven't seen it. Uh, you've seen worse ethical films. Then, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, I just okay. haven't seen that one. Um, uh, the Witch and the Lighthouse <laughs> by the same filmmaker. Great, great choice. Um, uh, the Babadook. Yep. Moonlight was on my runners-up. Portrait, okay. Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Mm -hmm. Ex Machina is yep. really uh, really about a lot. Uh, the Turin Horse, Bellatar's The Turin Horse. Didn't see it. Uh, Camera Person, a really fascinating documentary about what it is to film. Mm -hmm. uh, Tangerine is a really wonderful L.A. film. Uh -huh. Mother, exclamation point, <laughs> is a... An, it's college student art house freak out par excellence. <laughs> Under the skin is really freaky. The mm -hmm. white ribbon uh, tells the story of the uh, rise of fascism mm -hmm. uh, in a small community. Amour, also yep. by Michael Haneke. Uh, Spring Breakers. Yeah. Uh, is br bracing and strange. Uh, the first part of Nymphomaniac, because it whiffs the ending. <laughs> They were released separately, so I can do that. Uh, Premium Rush is just a wonderful, frothy, fun action film. The Handmaiden. Mm -hmm. uh, the Other oh, Side of pick. the Wind, for goodness sake. Yeah, that was on my, that was my runner. Yeah, that almost uh, made my top ten. Yeah, I, I remembered a movie I'd forgotten. But, right. yeah. um, uh, Inside Lewin Davis. Moonrise Kingdom. Mm -hmm. The, the uh, Coen Brothers. We got uh, Wes Anderson. Uh, 13th. Yeah, oh, great 13th. documentary. Uh, Brilliant documentary. Uh, Chirac, Black Klansman, I mentioned already. Uh, the Wolf of Wall Street is, I think, of... The Scorsese films to come out this decade, the best one. Arguably. Uh, An Elephant, Elephant Sitting Still, it came out this year, is a great film about depression. A Ghost Story. Think, oh, really? Uh, it's a really you... wonderful uh, mm. contemplation of sort of death and mortality. I, I, I didn't um, realize that hit you so hard. Yeah, okay, I like the, cool. I liked okay. the Ghost Story a lot. The Lobster is wonderfully absurd. Mm -hmm. Upstream Color was also pretty absurd. Great pick. Uh, Edge of Tomorrow. Yeah, a that's wonder a fun wonderful one. action film. Uh, speaking of Tom Cruise action films, that one Mission Impossible. <laughs> <laughs> Just whichever one you like no, best, it, it's it, on there. No, it was uh, Rogue specifically Nation. Rogue Nation. Yeah, um, you and I are, are on the. Are on the, are of the belief that Rogue Nation is better than Ghost Protocol and Rogue Nation uh, is better and, than Ghost Protocol it's and about, Fallout. It's, it's better than Fallout too. <laughs> I know, I know, but we're kind of alone on that. Uh, I think uh, everyone likes it, but I don't think we're. Yeah. I think we're the only ones that like we're it. Talking best. about action movies, yeah. um, Arrival, wonderful Great film pick. about language. Get Out is on my list. Yep. Uh, Steven Spielberg's Lincoln is on my list. Great pick. That is a wonderful film. Personal Shopper, the Olivia Assayas film choice. with Kristen Stewart. Yeah. Uh, First Reformed, I thought was really stellar. Mm -hmm. You were never really here is on there. Christine is on there. One of the funniest films of the decade, Pop Star, Never Stop, Never Stopping. Also, my runners up. Bloody hilarious. Roma is a wonderful mm -hmm. piece of art. Yep. 
the guest. Hey, I wanted to put the guest on my number. I actually, this is true. I wanted to put the guest on my top ten, mm. but one of the stars on the guest is now my current trivia partner on oh, the show. Oh, so I guess you can't now. Now can I'm you? on the record. I was on board with that film long before I ever met that guy. Uh-huh. I, my first review was a rave, and I was putting it on best of the decade lists. Like we were doing them like over time to see how mm. they would evolve. I love the shit out of that movie, <laughs> and it would have made my top ten, but I felt yeah. I couldn't do it because I know the guy personally. Um, Enter the Void. Uh, Gaspar Noe's film about transmigration. Mm-hmm. Uh, Shoplifters, the Korea film, was very, very good. I that one. Um, although it was made by a monstrous man, uh, my favorite science fiction film of the decade was Valerian in the City of a Thousand Planets. Yeah, it's a gorgeous film. It's a really, really gorgeous film. Yeah. And of course, Mandy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, in my, fact, if, if you look at my list, I wrote Mandy really big in like nice. metal, metal lettering. Of course you did. Uh, my, I think I might have put fewer films on my runners up list, but okay. Uh, my runners up, uh, White House Down, I mentioned it briefly. Yeah. Great action movie. Uh, The Voices, which I think is maybe the most underrated horror film of the decade. It's also another brilliant film about mental health that gets you into the head space of Mm. a serial killer in a way that I don't think any other movie does. It's great. Uh, Inside Out, uh, oh, good choice. I, I think that's yeah, probably yeah. Pixar's masterpiece of the decade. Yeah, yeah. Took me a while to get on board with that, but mm. now I firmly believe it. Uh, Christine is another absolutely yeah, brilliant man, film. Like I, I think yeah. Rebecca Hall arguably gives the best performance of the decade. That's fair. Uh, Popstar Never Stop, uh, Never Stop, Never Stopping. Mm. One of the three funniest movies of the decade. <laughs> the other two, Shaun the Sheep movie and Pirates Band of Misfits. <laughs> oh, God bless you. Both of those movies are <laughs> nonstop laugh mm. riots, and please go see them if you haven't. I love them both. Uh, the Other Side of the Wind, un- um, embarrassing how slept on that film was. Yeah, yeah. Really, it is astounding cinema. The Master, oh, uh, good I think it's a really right. great film about the, how men get lost like in their masculinity. Specifically and like, men, yeah. I think specifically men, and I think they from World War II, but now we're seeing increasing parallels. Uh, Warrior is one of the great sports movies, period. I'm okay uh, with Warrior. Uh, uh, Asghar Fahadi's A Separation is, Ooh, I think, one right. of the great moral parables of our time. Tree of Life. Uh, for pure action, nonstop cinema, Fast Five is amazing. It's <laughs> a great movie. Yeah. Same with John Wick. I love John Wick a lot. Just didn't make my top ten. Um, brilliant story about... Uh, women who are just trying to make their way in the world and how that makes other people see them as villains, love and friendship. Oh, love and friendship is awesome. Kate Beckinsale yeah. gives one of the most underrated performances of the decade. She's great in that movie. Uh, I think Creed is a really, really excellent addition to the Rocky canon that is, is almost as good as the original Rocky. I love it. Right. Uh, Dread, almost made my list. Mm, uh, well, I already talked about yeah. it. Uh, Tim Burton's Big Eyes is, I think, is one of the oh, most underrated go. films of the decade. I think Amy Adams gives her best performance, um, and I think it's just really an unusual film in a lot of ways, and it's great. Uh, too many cooks. <laughs> Thank you. Someone put that on Twitter as a joke, and then I thought about it. And I'm like, actually, yes. I actually like a- think that movie is like, yeah, okay, it's weird, kind of for its own sake, but I think there's a reason it resonated. Um, well, it's it's. It's meta in a way that Adult Swim had actually been doing for the better part of 15 years. Yeah. You watch Space Ghost Coast, Coast to Coast, you mm. see the punchline already waiting there for you. It's yeah. just the one that sort of took the world by storm in meme form. Yeah. That, that's that's significant. I think it's great. Mm. Uh, uh, and then three more. Uh, Inception, I think, is just absolute knockout mm, intellectual right. blockbuster cinema. Um, Inception's pretty good. I love Inception so. more than you. Uh, Nightcrawler, uh, the movie Joker... Would be if it were smarter. Uh, And then finally, I think the movie that is truly exciting and wonderful, and it amazes me how few people even know about it. Detective Pikachu. Moonquake Lake. (laughs) 
See what I mean? Oh, Moonquake Lake. Moonquake Lake, the great movie hidden inside a bad movie. Yeah. Uh, if you recall, nobody does because it was a piece of crap, but they made a new version of Annie and they, they remixed the songs and... Yeah. Some of them are better than others. It's not the worst film ever, but it's not good. The actress who played Annie was actually not good in that role. No, I think I think she was miscast, and I don't blame her for it. I think they should have found someone who was more comfortable in the role. But in over the course of Annie, one of the things Annie gets to do with her Daddy Warbucks newfound uh, billions is go to film premieres, and she goes to the film premiere of this really horrendous Twilight knockoff looking movie called Moonquake Lake. Which stars Mila Kunis and the movie within the movie was directed by Phil Lord and Chris Miller <laughs> from the Lego movie. So it's funny and it's great and it's all about mermaids from the moon. Mm, and they're going to war with other people. No, no it's, the mermaids are going to war with the Moonians, right? Or something like so. that? Anyway, it's absolutely, it's one of my favorite moments in a movie and because it is technically a movie, I get to put it on my runners up. Because <laughs> it was such a delight <laughs> to run into Moonquake Lake. I really hope Lord and Miller actually make it someday. Wouldn't that be wonderful? If they make the Moonquake Lake movie. I would love that so much. <laughs> I think it's fair. I think it's okay to do like Here's a the, funny YA movie. I think it's yeah. kind of it's kind of weird we haven't had like well, we, a proper satirical. We have. Guy. We well, had we, one called Vampires Suck and it was not well received. No, no, no. That, that, that's a pair. I'm not a spoof. I'm talking yeah. about like genuinely funny like the scream of YA movies oh, okay. you know like where it's funny but it is also the thing it's satirizing yeah. I think Lord Miller could do that I think they could anyway we're I off on a rant do, yeah. uh, so that's our picks for the best films of the decade that might change tomorrow yeah <laughs> but like I said I, could, I stand by I could, all these films I could strike my list and fill it with any of those titles that I mentioned yeah. Yeah. I, I stand by all these films if you haven't seen them I hope you do if you see them please let us know letters at criticallyacclaimed.net is the email address feel free to send us your top 10 uh, we're looking for just a list because mm. if we give everyone's long explanations um, yeah, it'll take forever but we would love to read your lists on future episodes of We've Got Mail mm. um, and uh, then we'll be back next week with do we dare do we dare do we dare do the worst films of the decade? Uh, we can try. We're going to debate this. I'm not sure I actually <laughs> want to relive some of these. We may come back with that. We may come back with just movie reviews because mm. we're starting to fall a little bit behind. It's been yeah. a slow couple of weeks, but we have seen movies. Either way, new reviews are coming soon on Critically Acclaimed. And you can check out all of our other content. Cancel Too Soon is back. We're talking about uh, the animated series based on Siegfried and Roy's Lions, played by John Goodman and Carl Reiner. And Cheryl Hines, and you're like, what? Um, and we've got we've got mail coming out <coughs> as well, and a whole bunch of other cool things. So, thank you everybody for listening. Follow us on Twitter. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. And together we are at Critic Acclaim. And here's to another decade of great movies. Watch them all. Criticize them all, because everyone is a critic. I'm sorry, what?